Morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network, and that was Zion Trinity singing opening prayer to the African deity Eshu Legba, a deity that lets us know that we always have choices. We are never victims, so we should definitely take a breath and exercise those options. And we are so excited. You know, we love poetry. On this show, and we're so excited to have Carla Brundage in the studio again. Um, I think she was in the studio mm, maybe a week ago, a week or two ago. Good morning, Carla. How are you? Good morning, Wanda. How are you? I'm good, actually. Thank you. Excellent. A little bit um, tired. Oh, yeah, you're a busy woman. And uh, we also are joined in the studio um, by uh, Anuj uh, Nichawan. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. Oh, no problem. I've been practicing your name. (laughs) I really appreciate that. That was better than 99% of the time I've heard my name. Okay, okay. How do you say it then? 99%. How do you Um, say it? (laughs) Oh, uh, the Anuj Nijavan, the the sound in the last name is, I, I think it's just harder for uh, most speakers from different languages. So, oh uh, well, I was I was going according to that English pronunciation. Yeah, you told me that it was didn't really sound good. Like what that you was just really good. Me. Yeah, that <laughs> yours is yours. You, you said better than the than the recording. <laughs> but anyway, uh, <laughs> so Carla, you're representing Colossus, and uh, Anuj, um, you're representing um, Shuffle, and both of you are going to be joining us. You're joining us to talk about the Weekend of Words, Friday, May 8th through Sunday, May 10th. It's going to be simply phenomenal. Oh, my gosh. And um, so maybe you could tell us about that, and then I'll we'll backtrack and, and, you know, do the bio. Why don't you tell us how you all met and how the um, Weekend of Words came to be? Well, um, I think – Anuj can talk better to how the whole Weekend of Words and Shuffle Collective came together, but that's how we met. And we actually um, have only met once because COVID started right after our first um, meeting, which was um, 
the orientation for the shuffle residency. So I think um, I'm, Anuj should probably answer about that, and then I can um, add in because it's a beautiful thing they've created. He and Tess. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, so Shuffle Collective is a modern network for creative and literary artists, and it really came from our own experience as people in the arts, people sort of working outside the classic nine-to-five, that there wasn't really much infrastructure built for us, uh, the hidden professional infrastructure that we have in terms of organizations, jobs, resumes, titles, legitimacy. And so we are essentially building what we wish we had. And as as we develop in that, we, one of our initiatives was uh, get, starting with the community here and um, both giving back to the community and also learning from the community and how best we can build this, which was via the Literary Arts Residency, of which we are so grateful for Carla to be a part of. Um, and that's how we met. And the Week in the Woods um, has very much been a response to all of the things that have been going on since the last three months when things started getting canceled, big and small events. You know, the small events got very easily and amazingly very quickly replaced by Zoom calls and sessions. Uh, but one of the things that we kept hearing was around the idea of what does a bigger show of solidarity and support look for? And a lot of the folks in our community have had new book tours canceled, releases canceled, um, that in their sort of entire publishing uh, prospects have been affected. So we started thinking about what, um, with the little technical knowledge that we have, what we could pull off and started as a little experiment for a online like online festival for maybe a couple of nights. And it's turned out to be a three-day uh, virtual literary festival with now we have over 110 writers and poets uh, participating in some way, shape, or form, um, either doing workshops or as part of panels or uh, doing readings and over 50 sessions and it's completely free so that it's accessible to everyone in the community. And we're extremely excited uh, for both of you to be a part of it as well. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. 110 writers? Wow. That's amazing. That is simply amazing. 50 sessions? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Workshops, and, and panels, reading? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's the gamut from if you're into poetry or if you're into speculative fiction, we've got you covered. You know, with mm-hmm. every yes, aspect you really of the do. industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so where do you come in, Carla? I come in um, as a resident in the Shuffle Collective residency um, with the new platform that um, Anuj and Tess have developed. And as part of the residency, um, the Weekend of Words was a project that we are working on together. There's, I think... Um, 21 people in the residency, I'm not sure, but it's a That's group right. of, um, yeah, poets and writers um, from mostly California and mostly the Bay Area, but a little bit broader. And I could name some of them later. Um, I could now, so Dewana Fulwiley, Lizette Wenzer, um, Jen Aminti, there's a, just uh, Sage Curtis, there's just a great group of us that 
and we meet every week um, and we do some workshopping and we're doing a lot of professional development such as um, you know thinking about our online presence and how we want to progress as writers so there's been a lot of introspection and a lot of collaboration in um, the collective and I we're the um, pilot so I believe there'll be more to follow and that's really exciting and so in terms of weekend of words it was a really great opportunity for me to showcase some two of my personal projects um one both of them Wanda you're involved in the first personal project is um West Oakland to West Africa so um I'll be doing a panel um at the weekend of words called West Oakland to West Africa, facilitating an international poetry exchange. And in that one, we'll actually have Sir Black from Ghana co-facilitating with me and Tyrese. And we'll be talking about the way we exchanged poetry with uh, poets in Ghana for over a year. And we were also offered the opportunity to curate a reading. And so I wanted to highlight a second project that I've been working on with um, my co-collaborator, Sarah Beal. And this one is particularly timely at the moment. It's called Colossus Home. And Colossus Home is a collection of poetry that's a fundraiser for Moms for Housing. And we um, have right now 76 poets who have submitted poetry to our anthology which we're in the middle of editing. So we'll have six readers from um, from Colossus Home representing the collection, and that will be on May 10th uh, at 7 p.m. And representing the collection will be Sarah Beal, Jamal Chastin, Shilpa Kamat, Paul Corman Roberts, Wanda Sabir, Ma Shin Win, and hopefully Holly Hardy. And so we'll have a 30-minute reading and talk more about the collection at that time. And of course, we'll be shouting out for funds because 100% of the money will go to Moms for Housing. And I just want to shout out Sarah Beal. This was a collaborative. We decided we wanted to um, look at the issue of the unhoused. And Sarah has been a social worker in San Francisco for 20 years, and she works with a lot of um, unhoused people. And so it was a topic that was really important to her and so when we when the moms for housing um sit-in happened we had already been brainstorming a collection so it just seemed natural to donate the funds to that organization and yet we understand that the problem is um longer and larger than this one organization but we do have uh we represent a number of voices from academics to local poet celebrities to people who um, identify themselves as homeless and um, or unhoused, depending on their own words. So it's going to be a beautiful collection, and I'm really excited about it. And Sarah was unable to make it today because she's um, actually been deployed as an essential worker, so I'm representing both of us today. <laughs> and and when is uh, the uh, the World of Wild panel? I, I think it's on Saturday, but what time? Oh, 
10 a.m. We have these panels. Um, anything that has to do with um, Ghana is very early in the morning, so 10 a.m. our time, and that's 5 p.m. Ghana time. So we try and be equitable in scheduling our events, including our readings, which are the fourth Saturday of every month, also at 10 a.m. on Saturday morning. So um, it's a beautiful exchange, but um, the time the time for um, most of us California poets is a little unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the um, uh, the fourth Saturday in May is the twenty third. Is it ten to eleven, or because I know before it was an hour? Is it ten to eleven this month as well, or is it longer? Yes, we're actually we're working on the format to stay within that hour. Um, that hour time frame, which we have gone over. And this has to do, again, with equity. Um, the way we as Americans pay for our Internet um, is not an international phenomena. There are people who pay still by the minute for their Internet. And the Zoom application, as beautiful as it is, takes a lot of bandwidth. So to be equitable, again, with our Ghana partners, we are trying to stick to that one our time slot, and so we have to work harder on our side not to go over, and we are we're doing that. Mhm. <laughs> right, Anuj, are are you presenting um, uh, during the uh, weekend of words, uh, and if so, uh, what part of it? Uh, so I we all of our team is just going to be behind the scenes, making sure the festival runs smoothly. Uh, we will mm-hmm. be, you know, hosting a couple of the readings and and seeing those readings. But mostly our job is making sure that all those authors and poets that are coming together, they get the spotlight in there. They have enough time to to put on their show, and we can make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're a technologist. You have to tell me what that means. And a filmmaker. I know what filmmakers are. <laughs> Based in Oakland. <laughs> and uh, we already mentioned that you know, you're, the, you're the co-founder of Shuffle. And Shuffle is a network for literary and creative professionals. And, again, one of the organizers behind the Weekend of Words, a free virtual literary festival. And the website is wow.shuffle.do. So you can go to the website and register and figure out what you want to go to and just say, oh, my God, I'm going to have so much fun this weekend. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, you won't be able to do it all, unfortunately, because there are some uh, sessions that start at the same time, and there are others, though, that you can catch 30 minutes of it or 40 minutes of it and then shift to another one if you can tear yourself away. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the technology? Unfortunately, yeah, um, I'll just say something really quickly about the festival scheduling. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we had to, you know, um, have multiple tracks just to accommodate all of the people that are coming through. But uh, <laughs> I'd urge everyone to join in for whichever ones they can. We will have recordings later, but um, we're set it up so that it's three full immersive or two and a half immersive days of just focusing on writing a poetry um, and highlighting the amazing work that a lot of local artists are doing that don't usually get a platform, so uh, I'd urge everyone to make it to whichever sessions they like, and anything, and, and the festival is free, so there is no barrier, and anything that you contribute goes 100% directly to the artist or the facilitator of the panel, so just to 
well, put that out there. Um, to your question, uh, technologists, the way I like to think about it is, you know, anyone who makes things with technology, and I feel like the usual terms that we use are either they have connotations or they're sort of narrow. Uh, when people think about like programmer or coder, or cause it, it implies something very that you're doing something technical, but a technologist is a much more creative um, interpretation of that role, where you are coming up with solutions and products that um, that's essentially a creative act. And I've worked in uh, the tech industry for about a decade building those products and you know my skills go from design to programming to product management so technology seems like the best way to frame all of those mm -hmm. yeah nice nice and and then you have film you're a filmmaker so what films have you made that I might know uh, <laughs> um, most of the films that I've made are short films that have gone to festivals so uh, I'm not sure if those have been uh, films yet, you know, but there was one film that we that I co-wrote and produced uh, called uh, For Hero to Go, which is a feature film that released in the Bay Area like, almost a couple of years back, and it had some prominent actors from India, um, from Bollywood, so uh, definitely check that out, For Hero to Go, but other films I've made, which I've made to festivals are According to Plan A and Sonder, so short fiction films, um, that tell some story around um, that tell some story around like um, people who are somewhat living normal lives but are not really, or people who who, li who we think are living normal lives but are doing something extraordinary with their lives. Um, that's sort of the common theme, and they're all bilingual or trilingual films as well, which is another sort of little passion area for me. Mhm. Mm well, that sounds great. Sounds really great. Yeah. So let's talk some more about the festival. Thank Tell you. us some of the workshops um, besides the ones that Carla um, told us about, you know, that she's facilitating or um, is a part of. Tell us about some of the other folks. Yeah. Um, drop some names. Tell us what's going on. I, I hear just like some really famous people <laughs> that are going to be leading That's workshops and, and facilitating um being part of panels and being soloists, <laughs> you know, all by themselves, you know, at cer in certain slots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to actually um, highlight a few few of the amazing ones that we have. We're starting off the festival uh, in the afternoon with these three amazing um, diverse LA poets, uh, and it's very much uh, addressing the topic that is going on right now: the world is on fire, and we're just poets. Uh, and it's a panel discussion with a reading mixed in with it. Um, we also have a, a few different podcasts coming together as part of the festival. One of them, uh, called the Reading Women Podcast, is going to do a live recording, which it, they've never done before, and it's this opportunity to see behind the scenes of how a podcast is recorded and what that interview conversation is like um, with the hosts of the podcast, which we're really excited about. Um, we also have... Tongo, uh, Isaac Martin, who you are familiar with, um, part of the initial reading as well. In the mornings and during the daytime on both Saturday and Sunday, we have tons of panels um, and workshops. Uh, Carla mentioned her amazing West Oakland to West Africa, which happens on Saturday morning, but we also have um, you know, panel discussions from uh, the directors and deans of MFA programs in the Bay Area, from SF State, Mills, 
and uh, University of San Francisco coming together to uh, talk about what is the future of MFA programs, what is the future of these gadget programs today after the pandemic. Um, in, at the same time, there's a more industry aspect where there are discussions around getting published. What does it mean? What does it mean to get published today um, when you're an underrepresented writer um, or from an underrepresented population, uh, which is going to be hosted by Asian American Writers Workshop. Um, and then we, some of the panels are much more around the craft. So uh, speculative fiction is a big focus for us. So if you're into speculative fiction, usually you get to hear only a very specific point of view. And here we are going to be highlighting um, some of the stalwarts from Chicano sci-fi, as well as from the Afrofuturist movement. Um, and that's one of the conversations we're really excited about, where we have Yatasha Womack, Missy Shaw, John Jennings, and Sui Davies uh, coming together on to to explore what what is the intersection of Afrofuturism and literature today. And they're all, um, you know, really amazing and at the forefront of this movement. Um, so those are kind of panels and workshops that we're putting on that we're really excited about. Um, at the same time, we're going to also have um, a lot of what we are calling new book spotlights, which is going to be highlighting uh, authors that have that are coming up with new books uh, that have been affected. And this is going to range from poetry, you know, literary fiction to nonfiction, uh, and even humor. And um, finally, I should definitely plug in um, the panel on writing for social justice, which we're so excited about. And thank you for your help in helping us pull that together. Uh, which is going to have yourself, Aya Dillion and Kim Shuck all together in a conversation which explores that relationship between writing and social justice and how they influence each other, which we're extremely, extremely excited about as well. And I'm sure I missed uh, probably half so the Kim, so Kim said workshops yes. and panels. Oh. Kim said yes, <laughs> and she was very excited. <laughs> uh, so, so, I'm, so I'm really kicked about that as well. And um, alongside there are all these smaller um, workshops as well, which are just for maybe less, um, they, they have a cap on them, but they're all really focused on making an intimate environment around the craft. So, you know, writing uh, as a way to overcome what is going on with the pandemic or writing as a way to explore, your, um, you know, what writing a personal essay is like. So there's so much um, that there, I've probably missed some, like, encourage everyone to go to wow.shuffle.do, www.shuffle.do, and find a session that speaks to you. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. But Carla, you, um, you write that you are a Bay Area-based poet, activist, and educator with a passion for social justice. You were born in Berkeley, California, but you spent most of your childhood in Hawaii, where you developed a deep love of nature and uh, you're a board member of the Before Columbus Foundation, and uh, your work can be found in a variety of publications. And um, you're a master teacher, and, uh, you know, um, you've, you know, had some really, you're really a great teacher, and, um, you know, sort of really cultivate the voices of young people. And um, you have edited a new book um, of, you know, the experience of, West Oakland to West Africa and the Helicasa poets, our spirits carry our voices, um, West Oakland to West Africa, poetry exchange. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, give us a little preview of the panel. And if you want to share a poem or two, you can do that as well. Oh, 
Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm very excited about this book um, because it does bring to light a lot of emerging voices, especially um, from Ghana. The spoken word scene is really um, taking off in Africa, and I find what I find um, kind of philosophically the most amazing thing is how the oral tradition or the griot um, grio tradition, which came to America from our ancestors um, and influenced so many of our musical and poetry forms, you know, hip-hop spoken words, you know, really um, shapes sort of our culture and youth culture here. And then in Ghana, what's happening is it's kind of an interesting thing, the same erasure of history, the same erasure of culture. And so Sir Black, what he discovered was many young people did not know their history and were so obsessed with American culture and all wanted to be hip-hop artists and all wanted to be rappers. And so what he did is he kind of like using the similar format of Youth Speaks in a way said, um, this is our culture. We have been a traditionally um, oral oral culture. This is actually our history that we're reclaiming through this new form. And so it's taking off wildly. They're having poetry slams and poetry events. And I think last year they had the first international poetry slam in Chad. Um, so watching sort of this exchange of culture going back from the continent to here and here to the continent and the continent and here in this kind of infinity, if you could imagine the infinity sign to me is um, so inspiring. And that's really what hooked me in terms of this book. And that's what this book comes to represent is how can we as African-Americans who've experienced slavery, how can we, um, sorry, how can we, reach back to our ancestors and reach back to our modern African culture, what is happening now. And so bringing together youth from here and youth from there to explore what is current uh, as well as our elders to, to, and I'm kind of considering myself an elder at this point, to consider what is modern culture, you know? And then um, I love the idea of bringing not just the history of our, of, of our oppression and our enslavement, but also like now, what is now. And that's what the book has come to represent uh, for me. Um, I know I talked a long time. Um, actually, one of my favorite exchanges in the book is between you, Wanda, my Black Life, and Marissa Araba Taylor Darko, uh, kind of talking about um, loneliness and loss um, as women and what that comes to represent. We also have um, an exchange between Ziamara and Natty Ogley, which those poems are about Black woman and African queendom um, and the perceptions of kind of Black male-female relationships so I think um, I won't read a poem. I'd love for you to get the book. You can get it on Amazon, Our Spirits Carry Our Voices, or you can get it at our website, westoaklandwestafrica.com. 
but it's a really exciting exchange, um, and uh, the the words are really beautiful. Uh, yes, they are, and and all of the uh, the money uh, raised from the sales uh, goes to Helicasa, right? Because they're building a a community center um, for their programming with youth and young people in the community. Yes, and it's actually not in the heart of Accra. It's a little bit out um out in um so that place will I forgot the name of the small town, but it's actually on the beach and it's gonna be an environmental center as well as a performance venue. So we definitely wanna support that. And that's where the money is going to help support their efforts over there. And honestly, to help pay for their internet when they do uh, Zoom in, <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. from small to large. Right, yeah. And it's similar, Carla, to when we did um, uh, the uh, the book for um, survivors of, um, of Hurricane Katrina, Words Upon the Water is a poetic response to Hurricane Katrina and how the funds from that particular book went back to the community in New Orleans and in Mississippi to um for people, you know, who were rebuilding their lives and also to prepare for other, you know, natural disasters. And we did that for I don't know, about ten years, right? Yes. <laughs> we did. <laughs> yeah, these books that turn into um, you know, um offerings, you know, to help make the world a better place. And um yeah, tell our audience about this beautiful cover and the designer. Oh, okay, so um, our cover of our book is um, trying to represent um, what I just shared, sort of the Sankofa journey, and um, it was designed by Nana Balatang, who uh, I work with at 826 Valencia, and she is a young woman who is of Ghanaian ancestry, but has not yet been to Ghana, and she was um, going to come on our next trip um, with us. And so that's another connection that's sort of been able to be made is with the diaspora here in um, in the Bay Area and the U.S. Right, yeah. Wow, well, thank you both so much um, for joining us to um, – to whet our audience's appetite and tease them and and to like, oh yes, we definitely, you know, need to go to this website and see which ones of the workshops and panels and other things we wanna do this weekend. So is there going to be this is is this like volume one and there's gonna be other uh weekends of of words to come? Um, you know, sort of what's your vision? <laughs> uh, that, that's very much our plan, um, you know, especially with the virtual programming. I, we feel like what the, despite all of the horrible things that are associated with the pandemic, the one small spark of silver lining is that we can now create programming which brings people from different places together, and Carla's mm-hmm. project is a great, great example of that. Um, and so we're planning to do much more around uh, the, the online programming. We're going to do more master classes. Uh, education events and as well as readings, and this is just the first, and that's what we love about the name, the weekend of words, because it can come again, as weekends do. <laughs> right, certainly, certainly. 
Well, congratulations, and I'm looking forward to being um, coming to the Weekend of Words and seeing everyone. And Thank you so much. Ah, being inspired. Really looking forward to it, and also to learning more about you know the the uh, Shuffle Collective and um, yeah, yeah, and meeting some of the other people who are part of the collection, uh, Carla, for Colossus Home. That should be really fun. I really enjoy the readings that we used to have over um, uh, near the Embarcadero, you know, when we could meet, um, you know, uh, face-to-face and not in the socially, not socially, but the physically distancing um, norm now. Yeah, thank you, um, Wanda. I I wanted to ask Anuj. He has this beautiful acronym of social that he shared with us on this first um, orientation, and um, I'm not sure how you're going time wise, but the philosophy of um, the philosophy of Shuffle Collective is so cool and their vision of kind of building this platform is so amazing. And I don't know if he has a, a couple minutes he could explain the, his acronym, um, but it's, it's really beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful offering that he and um, Tess have made. I can still hear me. So, Anuk, are you going to share it with us? Do you have time? Oh, oh, sorry. I just, yeah, I, I started speaking, and then I realized that I was just speaking to myself. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if we got cut out there. But, yeah, um, I'm trying to remember if I remember all of this for the social um it's been a while since I looked at that acronym that I created, and oh, let's I see can if I can come it. up. But I can, I, but I, I can. It? Yes, please do. I love okay. that. He, and I can he, talk to um, I can talk to that. <laughs> yeah. It's a solidarity, opportunity, collaboration, collaboration inspiration, solution, accountability, and legitimize. Yeah. Thank you. I, I was forgetting to do, 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 do it one more time, Carla. Yeah. Um, could you say it one more yeah, time? Yeah, for social. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Solidarity. Solidarity. Mm-hmm. Opportunity. Opportunity. Uh huh. Col- collaboration. Collaboration. Uh huh. Inspiration. Inspiration. Mm-hmm. Accountability. Accountability. Mm-hmm. And legitimacy. Legitimacy. Oh, very nice. Yeah. 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 Thank, thank you for putting that artist. out. Yeah. And for us, a lot of that was coming as a reaction to is, you know, um, online platforms and have always had issues um, for right reasons to criticize. And when we thought about um, how, if you were to rethink the original vision of the internet and how it can actually help artists um, and those who don't usually have the support structures, what would that look like? And as we worked through that, these were sort of the, the bullets that we had came up with. If a platform, if any organization for that matter can provide these things, that 
is like the gold standard for what an organization can do uh, to help support artists, to help support people um, who haven't it. So that's, those are the things that we're looking to build. And for us, that translates into um, building, you know, going from legitimacy. So how do we legitimize artists? Uh, what kind of support do we need to provide? Uh, what kind of support do they need? Um, and, you know, from the sort of outward-facing things to both to inward-facing things like accountability. What does accountability mean as someone who's managing their own creative process? Um, and what are the other things that you need to move forward uh, to the next step, whether it's collaboration, whether it's inspiration? Um, so that's really where the vision of Shuffle Collective comes through, that as we bring together everyone, um, all these artists, amazing artists in a collective, we can sort of provide that infrastructure and backing that um, helps um, them take their careers to the next level and really, you know, make it their life of what they do without, you know, without so many times what we see is um, people having to compromise on being able to make art or being able to express themselves because of having to have multiple jobs, having to have um, other things that come in their lives. So we're hoping that we can start to build those building blocks that can enable uh, people to pursue what they love. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice, yeah. So again, um, the Weekend of Words, uh, Friday, May 8th through Sunday, May 10th, which is Mother's Day, um, and you can get all the information you need at do. All righty. Cool. Well, thank you again so much um, for joining us uh, to talk about the Weekend of Words. And, uh, yeah, I know you had to rearrange your schedules and pull yourselves from the planning and other types of, um, you know, getting things together. So we really appreciate your time this morning. Of course. It's been such a great show. Thank you so much for having me. such a pleasure. Oh, you're quite welcome. Look forward to seeing you in a couple of days. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Wanda. It's always good talking to you, Carla. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Peace and blessings. I used to believe in one love, one love for one lifetime, the fireworks of a teenage dream zipping through the months but fading into dying years. How much more wonderful to sink in love with everything. Fall in love with the vastness of the sky. Drown in love with the gap-toothed smile of a stranger. Dabble in the cynical humor of your best friend's boyfriend. N'oubliez pas d'aimer comment ta mère a t'aidé chaque jour avec ta français. With the children, smiles as big as Kansas, running through the sprinklers. Fall in love with Thomas's timidity in basketball, despite being the tallest of them all. With Michael who liked to rap in Russian, and held his hand to his hip as he did. Fall in love with the ugliness of the world, with the smog that hides her curves, with the ugliness with which her mouth spits the truth. Fall in love with her hills, her mountains, her glacial peaks before they all melt away. Fall in love with her beauty, with the vulnerability with which she starts her days, hoping in vain that they end better than the last. Fall in love with the little black boy and the little white boy, whispering over a comic. Fall in love with their belief that life will always be as wonderful. Fall in love with the night and all her endless possibilities. Fall in love with books, 
Lose yourself in soft paperbacks and the lives you can pretend to live, if only for an hour or two. Fall in love with the stained glass windows, painting the shadows of rainbows. Most importantly, fall in love with yourself. Fall in love with yourself today and tomorrow and the day after that and all the days that follow. Mesmerize yourself with the way your afro frames your face like a cloud, the way your voice sounds in the shower, and the way your eyes go wide as the moon at a surprise. Love your reflection every time you pass a mirror and love her fiercely. Love yourself and everything around you before you chase something that could change its mind tomorrow.
Fall in Love, that was Mimi, um, Mutessa, and um, she uh, shared that poem with us for National Poetry Month this past month, and uh, yeah, I thought it'd be nice to play it again, Fall in Love, and uh, the music was the Lee, and um and I don't know how to pronounce it because it's in French, um, but I know it's for her for her grandmother. <laughs> and uh, when uh, when she uh, dropped that uh, that CD, I had her on the show to talk about um, the various tracks on this wonderful, wonderful um, CD. She is a really beautiful artist, and uh, she's in San Francisco. And her work is just really wonderful. So if you ever see Feliz's name, you definitely want to check her out. We have to get her on again and see what she's been up to because it's been a while since uh, I had her on. It's been many, many years. And what we're going to do today, because this is Mother's Day week coming up, so we're going to play from the archives uh, a show that I dedicated to uh, to mothers and that was about eight years ago, and so it was a really nice, uh, it was a, a nice program. I liked it, so I'm going to play that show, and you can enjoy. And then on Friday we're going to have um, uh, maybe three mothers, uh, or maybe just one, but we're going to have uh, a range of of um, elders who are mothers. Um, my uh, my friend sister Sadie Williams already agreed to join us, and she's 96. And I'm going to see if I can get um, some other folks. I don't know a whole lot of women in their 90s, um, so might have to get get a couple in their 80s and 70s to talk about their mothers and and also you know mothering. So anyway, it should be fun. So we're going to have a good time on Friday. So enjoy this preview. Um, voices from the past. <laughs> Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. Wanda's Picks. 
tune in Wednesday 6 to 7 a.m. and Fridays 8 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time. This is a black arts and culture site. We will be exploring the African diaspora via the writing, performance, both musical and theatrical, film and stage, as well as the visual arts of Africans in the diaspora and those influenced by these aesthetic forms of expression. I'm interested in the political and social ramifications of art on society, specifically movements supported by these artists and their forebearers. It is my claim that the artists are the true revolutionaries. Their work honest and filled with raw, unedited passion. They are true heroes. Ashe. So remember, visit us on Wednesdays 6 to 7 a.m. and Fridays 8 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on wandaspix.asmnnetwork.org. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks. This morning um, on Mother's Day weekend, we are going to be joined by a variety of guests, or that's our intention, to talk about their mothers or their guardians and sort of lift them up uh, in memory and in praise. Um, you know, there's not always an opportunity to, to do a shout-out to one's mother's. So we are going to be joined in the studio by these great women um, and men who are going to sort of remember their moms and uh, and also, in some cases, um, talk about themselves as mothers. And we're joined in the studio by Miss Ethel Murray. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm so happy you could join us to talk about your mother and talk about yourself as a mother. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about your mom. Um, you mentioned to me um, when I spoke to you a few minutes ago that she's no longer with us. Well, yeah, I said that. Sort of May a misnomer, May. though. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a misnomer because, you know, a lot of folks, uh, when mom passes away, Physically, you feel that she's no longer with you, but at one time in life, you realize her teachings are now what you're living by and what you're talking by. So while I no longer have the that patch of dirt to claim my visit every year, I realize that she's in me. She is now what I teach to my children. My mom had, I have seven siblings, and um, as the second oldest, my mom taught me how to help her by taking care of her children while she worked. She was a day worker, and she worked in the cannery. So some ladies that... uh, are listening that are of age may have known her. There was quite a group there. Her main thing of teaching was always tell the truth. The truth was something that, you know, man could trust you by. If you didn't tell the truth, you couldn't be trusted. And if there are any young people uh, listening, Today, always remember that. The truth is your passport. My name is uh, Ethel M. I'm a retired civil service worker. I, I, uh, 
after 30 years working for the Navy, you know, you'd wonder, you know, why on earth would my heart's desire be just to care for children? I think that was implanted in me as a young person. And when I got ready to retire, or when I retired, the thing that I wanted to do was care for children. So that's what I did. I established a group home, and I cared for girls and babies, which was the most enjoyable time in my life. Yeah, what's, what's your mother's name? Her, Victoria. Mm-hmm. Victoria Odin. She was a maker of things. In fact, my daughter has, uh, oh, who's a hairdresser, she has her products online right now. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's neat. Um, so how would one find those those products? I mean, how is well, she What's the website? Oh, uh, you know what? I'm not remembering the that titled name, mm-hmm. but it's under um, Kimberly Session. Kimberly Session. Okay, I'll see if I can find She's well known in the Bay Area. Okay. Yeah. Oh, super. Oh, well, thank you. And and um, so you took care of how many children? Um, You said you were a foster parent. How many children did you take care of? And then you also had children biologically. So how many children oh, have you yeah. reared? <laughs> I've uh, reared six. Mm-hmm. Six children. And uh, they're all great people, <laughs> wonderful people. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I've uh, after after uh, retiring from the Navy and um, doing the group home run, mm-hmm. I decided to look into education. And one of my professors is. Uh, Professor Sabir, our host today, <laughs> she's she's one of my he, my my sheroes. I'm trying to adapt her eth- her ethics, po- poetry, and busy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll get it down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you, Miss Ethel. Um, we're also joined by um, Robert King, and and we were joined by someone whose number I don't recognize. Um, who else has joined us to talk about their mom this morning? Uh, your auntie Makula. Oh, super, super. So, um, so Robert, uh, why don't you tell us about about your mom, about your guardian? Oh. Hi, Juan. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. How are you oh, this morning? I'm cool. Well, I really just called, you know, to listen in, and, and as I pointed out yesterday, you know, uh, I, I, I have some, you know, uh, some other commitments, but I, you know, you know, uh, what can I say, you know, uh, I can, you know, talking about <laughs> my mom, you know, uh, or the lady that raised me, was, she was actually my grandmother, you know, uh, she was, the um, only thing I could say, one is that she was great, but I tell you, um, while I thought she was great, 
Then it wasn't until her departure, you know, she died in fifth grade. I was about 14, 15 at the time. Um, and it wasn't until after her demise that I really missed her. So, I, 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 you know, all those have mothers and people who were, you know, acting like mothers to them, uh, I think they better appreciate them while, while they're here because, you know, once they're gone, you know, it's, yeah, it's you, you know the the feeling, you know, and the you know the the gap in the that exists, you know, is 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 pretty vast, pretty great, you know. You, the gulf is huge, and so yeah, um, I think in terms of 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 my my mother, the person who raised me, I, I you know, I I think and I, I I really think I feel that she's still alive. Um, you know, um, a lot of times. So, but and I do believe. Uh, yeah, I, I I actually believe that when I say alive, I don't mean you know physically. I I think her substance is here. You know, and um, mm-hmm. I think I'll I'll always I'll always feel that. But uh, it's nothing like the physical. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I, I what, what your um? What was your mom? Your mom's name? Oh, uh, her name, the lady that raised me was actually, again, my grandmother, but your I called her mom yeah. and she was mom. Her name was Alice King. Alice King, uh-huh. Yeah, her name was Alice King. And uh, she had subsequently had nine children of her own. Uh, well, uh, one one did not uh, make it, died in childbirth, I heard it. But she had nine, she raised nine children of her own, plus she raised myself mm-hmm. uh, and uh, my older sister. And um, and where tell tell our audience you know sort of the circumstances under which you know you were raised like where were you born and raised and uh-huh. what was what was it like there um, you know sort of you know when your your grandmother Alice what was your <coughs> what's your mother what's your biological mother's name your um your well, my biological mother uh, uh, name was Clara Clara May Clara May King uh-huh. uh she was the first born of my mother and um. In any event, you know, she passed my sister first, who was born about a year, 18 months or so uh, before me, or maybe two years or so. And and then I was born not, you know, long afterwards, and then she also passed me on to my, my grandmother, which was her mother. Um, she was living in New Orleans at the time, and uh, my grandmother was living in Gonzales, Louisiana, and... So when I was born and when my sister was born, we both were taken to my grandmother, who subsequently, like I said, was responsible for for raising us. And uh, you must realize that wow, this was uh, uh, when the, when my uh, grandmother, you know, accepted us. This was back uh, during the depression. You know, uh, this was part of the, the depression when when actually when she she was raised during that in that area. Uh, my mother came along sometime around, you know, when it hit. And by the time I came along, you know, being a post-World War II baby, and um, things weren't much better. In fact, things at the time had gotten worse, especially if you lived in the South and if uh, you was African-American. And, um, and my grandmother, she, uh, my mother did not have an education, uh, never having went to school. Uh, because during that time it wasn't encouraged anyway, 
black people to go to school um, at that time. Um, and so she had no schooling. And um, and and so it was hard for her. It was pretty hard. And even if she would have had, uh, in retrospect, when you think about it, um, there weren't any, you know, especially during that time, even if there were some, some blacks who had, you know, was highly educated and highly skilled in, in many things, but uh, that was a period when you was uh, last hired in 45 and sometimes not hired at all. So uh, it, it really uh, didn't matter. So those are the times in which I grew up in. And then like I said, I was a post-World War II baby coming along right uh, at the end of the, the war, which ended in 41, and I came along right after that. Um, uh, again, like I said, things wasn't that much much better. And by this time, um, um, my, like I said, my grandmother, she moved from Gonzales and moved to New Orleans, Louisiana. And um, it was in uh, New Orleans that I saw mostly my childhood. Um, and and this is where, like I said, my grandmother was here. Uh, my mother was here when she died, died in 58. Yeah. So, um, so what, what what lessons uh, are you carrying, you know, from your grandmother, um, Alice King, uh, with you presently? What what well, what lessons? Know, what values? I think I inherited all of her her, her value, you know, um, uh, and uh, plus my own because I'm my own entity. But I definitely, <laughs> but I definitely got a lot of of fortitude, inspiration. I got a lot of. My grandmother was was really a, a nice, caring person, and I learned humility from from her. I learned a lot of things. I imagine I, I, I attribute nearly everything that I, I I subsequently learned in life. I I actually attribute it uh, to to Mama. Uh, um, yeah, because without her, it could not have happened. And when I say Mama, I'm speaking of you know not my biological mother, but Alice, you know. Well, thank you so much, and and I want to let our audience know that um, uh, that Robert King has a book uh, from the bottom of the heap, the autobiography of Robert Hillary King, and it's being re-released. Um, and uh, is it is it is it going to be available this year? The um, uh, the reissue of the book on um, with with the um, with an update and as well as some um, additional um, chapters. Yes. Uh... I'm told that sometime in September, mm-hmm. but you know how that is with publishing companies, you know. Uh, but, but, but I think the book was kind of good to this publishing company, so they want to hurry up and get it done, and they probably will be on time. Right. Uh, with, and so yeah, it's sometime in in September, uh, uh, October, you know. But it's going to be at the, the the latter part of the year. Actually, I talked to my publisher uh, editor this morning, you know. Um, she's trying to, to to get it to the publisher right now and to make sure that it's um, you know it's on time. Right. Yeah. And and who's your publisher? It's PM Press. PM Press. Uh, right. And they're yeah, they're um they're a Northern California press, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're in Oakland, uh, Oakland, California, right. Ramsey, and yeah, uh, it's 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 there in California now. DM Press was an offshoot from. I'm trying to. I was trying to think as you talk of this other publisher, uh, publishing company that put out a lot of books. Uh, mm-hmm. um, 
during the late 60s and early 70s and 80s and 90s, as a matter of fact. And, but they are an offshoot from this particular uh, uh, book that was, uh, or this publishing company that was well known. And Ramsey just opened up, you know, decided to just branch out a little bit. And, and that's what they have been doing. And they publish hundreds of books a year. Wanda, I think I lost you. Uh, no, no, you didn't lose me. Okay. Um, I um, this person um, who I had on, she just a second. <laughs> Keep on talking. <laughs> oh, I was finished. I, uh, I really was finished. Okay. I just heard about uh, it. Just a second. Um, let's see. Um, let's see if Miss Ethel wants to add anything. Um, Miss Ethel, do you want to add anything? I was hearing him talk about his grandmother. Those were the greatest people. I think I had the best grandmother in the whole world. Her name was Effie Edwards from Madeira. She's wonderful. And so many grandparents stepped in for the children. And, you know, just a wonderful thing, grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, well, thank you so much, um, Robert, I wanted to let everyone okay. know that um, there's a really nice section in his book on his um, on his grandmother or mama, and and his his uh, uncles and aunts who are his brothers and sisters, and uh, really paints a portrait of of America that we don't read about or know about that often. So, um, congratulations on on you know you're having a, a new edition coming out very soon, um, you know the end of this year, and we'll have you on again to talk about that, and. Um, mm-hmm. And happy well, birthday. Did you have a birthday this month? <laughs> King? What was yeah, the name of this name. book? Oh, the name of the book is From the Bottom of the Heap. Bottom of the Heap. Yeah, From the Bottom of the Heap. And, um, the Autobiography of, of Robert Yeah, the Autobiography King. of Robert. Of uh, Black Panther, Robert Hillary King, right? Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Fantastic. <laughs> so we're looking for you to write your book, Miss Ethel. <laughs> so PM Press, uh, yeah, there we got we got we to like do like some kind of book proposal. So we got to oh, hook really? you up, yeah, because you've got a fantastic story. But um, King, I know you have to go, and um, so but you can stay in the studio if you like. But we've been joined by another another um, wonderful woman, um, uh, Sister Makula Godwin, who's going to do a shout out to her mom. Yes. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Morning to uh, all. Um, and uh, my shout out uh, first uh, to you, uh, dear little sister Wanda, because you are awesome. You're a brilliant woman, Isn't and you are willing to share your talents uh, for the betterment and the um, enhancement not only of your uh, wonderful family, uh, to, to whom you are an inspiration, but to us in general mm-hmm. by being this media personality and this teacher. Uh, of of literature and culture. Uh, my shout out also is to my mother, Mrs. Willie Mae Carter, who is now ninety. Wow. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> a widow. Um, she has um, her challenges and challenges that we need to become aware of that will be facing more of our people with aging. Uh, unfortunately, she's a, a victim of uh, a dementia, a vascular dementia, uh, caused by another illness, but. Back in the day, my mom uh, was such a vibrant person, 
She has talents that I'll never have in the kitchen. Uh, Mom had the, the sweet potato pies that no one else could has ever been able to do to, to duplicate. Uh, she was so much into being a mother. Uh, she she welcomed um, both the birth of myself as the oldest of her children and my brother, uh, who's a, a, a very dedicated uh, practicing physician here in the Bay Area, uh, Dr. Brazel Carter. Um, and when we got into um, college age, she had a, a serious uh, empty nest syndrome. So she went to um, the, uh, um, at that time, um, let's see, 40-plus years ago, um, all of the um, the black foster children uh, were um, uh, wards of the um, juvenile hall up here um, in uh, San Francisco. So she went to get herself at least one daughter um, to raise uh, as a foster mother and came out with three uh, children to raise. Uh, and she raised them uh, until they were teenagers, and at that time they decided to go back to their birth family. But, um, you know, it was just so important to her to be a mother and to have children around and to uh, struggle with all of their changes and be encouraging um, to them so that they could become productive people. And I feel that um, the fact that um, she wound up with myself and my brother, and we both strive to um, have a community consciousness and um, and to get into helping professions was a direct result of the caring that my mother had uh, to us and for us. And, uh, for instance, my brother, she insisted that my brother go to Lowell. He was hanging out with his hoodlum friends, and they were about to get into some problems, and she said, um, Son, nope, you got to cut it out. I want you to go to Lowell uh, so that you can get the best education available here in San Francisco. And that was such an inspiration to to turn him around that he did succeed um, and um, and did um, wind up going to Meharry uh, and, um, and heeding his mother's advice. My dad was, of course, very important as well, but I think... Uh, uh, the primary influence um, came from, you know, um, having my mother's foresight in his life. And, uh, you know, she's also uh, encouraged me uh, way, well before Chinese culture took such a hold here in San Francisco. She was getting up uh, three times a week to make sure I got to the Chinese cultural and language uh, club that we had at Belvoir High School at that time. And she was so proud. She was so proud that um, she um, helped me. Well, she um, made it possible for me to have piano lessons. Um, and she worked as a, as a maid outside of the home and then at UC. But she always put being a mother and making sure that uh, the, two, uh, the two of us um, had what we needed to become uh, productive citizens. Um, and as I mentioned, some of her skills and talents I'll never have. Her, her, her home-making skills in, uh, with her, um, her artistry in the kitchen and her, um, 
her um, ability to uh, crochet. She she crocheted and knit, and those are things that I never mastered at all. Um, I do have my own style of cooking because um, um, at that time, Mom would, I think she actually wanted me not to uh, have some of the homemaking skills because she wanted me to concentrate on academics more. So I've had to, I basically learned most of my cooking outside of my mother's um, uh, teaching and supervision. But, you know, there was motivation, and I always look back at her as the person who really knew how to throw down. And um, she was actually more of a mother to my my son than I was. Uh, and I have uh, the, the one son who um, actually uh, um, had his, his grandmother's influence uh, while I was in school and um, in, the, in his early years. And um, she was a person who gave unconditional love, uh, and she still would if she was able to, uh, but she is at this time um, struggling at, at this phase of her life with the severe dementia. Uh, but everyone in um, the family, uh, she's the oldest of nine children, and uh, neighbors and the church members, they all still remember back in the day when mom was such a viable, um, important person uh, and such an example of motherhood for so many, uh, as I've mentioned, both in the, in, uh, the immediate family and in the community. And she's known at her church as Mother Carter at this time. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and and I also want to mention to our audience that um, Sister Makula Godwin is a, is a wonderful. Um, she wrote, created this wonderful film. What's the name of your film that you? Um, a a jewel in history, the story of Homer G. Phillips Hospital for Colored. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is looking at you know the legacy of of the black hospitals that um, were most of them were closed because of of the impact of integration on. On, on the black community. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really wonderful film. Is, is it available? Can people get it? Uh, yes, uh, people can get it. I have a distributor, uh, a friend and sister, uh, Deborah Day of Ashe by the Bay. Yeah. Uh, you can go on her uh, her website and order it. I am almost, it's almost out of print because I have um, there was, uh, two primary editions of the film, uh, a 53-minute version and a 90-minute version. Some people prefer the 90-minute version, and those are the uh, the ones I still have available. But at this time, I need to get more copies of the 53-minute version. So I'm jealously uh, guarding my master copy so I can uh, take some time to um, um, get more uh, duplications of the 53-minute uh, version but they will be available in the near future. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, Susan Makula is um, one of the members of the MAPA uh, Commemoration Committee and has uh, been a real supporter of, um, of various various um, endeavors and efforts on the part of um, Lest We Forget, and which hosts the MAPA Commemoration every year and the series of events during MAPA Commemoration Month uh, when we do things like, you know, um, you know, send send um, 
inflatable beds and uh, pumps and things like that to Haiti um, to help the women and and mothers, uh, particularly those that have suffered violence, not just the violence of of um, of man, but you know the unsettling uh, experience of of uh, earthquakes, and then now we have the period where there's like a lot of rainstorms and and the international response has been great, but the money hasn't reached the people. So Sister Makula has actually reached in her own pockets and and, and bought you know beds and sent. I think you sent a hundred, right, to Haiti. I sent fifty. Fifty. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. And so anyway, whenever I call on her to help with some. Some of my humanitarian um, projects, she's always right there. <laughs> and again, that that comes from the uh, the influence of my parents, both my mother and my father, and the compassion that um, that they instilled in us as as children uh, that we want to help. You know, they were very active through the church, but um, I see the the church as just an extension, or well. The community as an extension of the compassion that should be in our churches uh, to to help others, and um, you know, life is a learning experience, and we uh, and and if our parents have given us at an early age the potential and the capacity to care for others, we should continue with that throughout our own lives. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so we're joined in the studio um, by Baina um, Sharif, who has another name, um, <laughs> and Baina is a healer, um, you know, trained formerly uh, as an RN, but now she's doing, um, you know, deeper healing work uh, through uh, the Asara Set community, and so, Baina, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, so I want you to do a shout out to your mom, you know, tell us her name, and and you can talk about, you know, your work. And you can also talk about some of our, our other um, mother energy and deities, like, you know, um, through the uh, uh, the Kemetic tradition that, that you are, um, you know, a partic- uh, practitioner in. I'm glad to be here, Wanda. Thank you for uh, asking me. And first, definitely wanted to shout out to my mother, Gertrude Jackson, uh, who turned 91 May 2nd. Oh, wow. Uh, her, she, yeah, and she was a registered nurse for 30-plus years. In fact, she was the first black RN in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got into that health and healing, you know, seeing all the um, healing that she did, you know, in her lifetime and still is doing, and uh, she's still vibrant and cooking and just doing all these 91, but she took care of six of us. Her and my dad are still married. They've been married for like 67 years and, you know, have just been those examples for us, you know, to to work in the community, uh, showing that love and that care that is just awesome to, to be in that family and to extended family and you know, it just radiates out into the community, so that was very important. And um, right now with the Star Set, uh, we have a queen mother here, Odawatma and actually tomorrow we're celebrating her birthday. We're, we're doing a fundraiser for lymphedema, and it's going to be at Fresh Choice Restaurant at Dayfair, 
from 11 to 9 p.m. Um, there's coupons that you can get online, and when you bring it in, um, Fresh Choice will give 15% uh, of that ticket toward the lymphedema fund. Her son, Robert, has lymphedema, and, you know, we have been uh, involved with uh, the Lymphedema Society and uh, doing work with, with them as well. And so that's tomorrow from 11 to 9. They honor the, the uh, coupon all day. And it's so important, but, you know, we wanted to celebrate her Earth Day and do a fundraiser as well. So that's very key. And in our work, too, with the Star Set, we do have uh, some people know him as Marcus Gary, who does the uh, Qigong workshop. And that will, should be starting up again in June, so we'll keep you abreast of when that will be. And Sunday, May 20th, we've been doing um, the Osirian Egyptian uh, initiation methods, and we will be having the Osirian raw initiation. We will be focusing on Heteru and Tehuti, which will be uh, Sunday, May 20th. The time it starts at 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. and the location is 2128 East 29th Street in Oakland, and that's there by the uh, Highland Hospital. And if you need any other information, uh, my number is 510-228-9543, or you can call Shekham Samri Kaulu. His number is 510. Two five three eight one two zero. And um, okay, so Baina, to... since you've um, you gave us all these commercials, um, <laughs> tell us about <laughs> tell us about you know some of the other the mother energy. You mentioned um, Oshun because everyone saw the great moon, and you mentioned um, and then people think about Yemen Yah, um, and mm-hmm. um, you know as being you know. You know, wonderful, you know, mother deity. And I was wondering if you could talk about that to our audience, particularly that might not be familiar with, um, you know, African spirituality and African tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, Heteru, uh, which also she's known in Yoruba as Oshun, mm-hmm. uh, is the deity, or the, actually the, um, not the deity, but the Netaru. And her energy is that moist energy and through her energy you deal with visualization, images and mantras, words of power she works in the imagination and with images this is how people can make changes in their lives, images have the power to arouse and channel the the life force so that you'll be able to transcend unwanted thoughts and emotions and when you do meditation uh, when you go within the meditation, you know, those images are very important because then you have to look at what images do you hold on to every day. And, you know, people say, I don't want to do this again. I don't want this to happen. But what happens, people hold those images in their in their mind, and so they keep getting what they keep, you know, seeing in their, in their mind. And Hedaru is also over relationships, she deals with love, peace, and harmony. She uh, knows how to kind of go within maybe a group and kind of bring out those different aspects of different people and bring harmony to the situation. 
Um, and she's related to the planet Venus. And, you know, there's so many things, you know, as females, too. Um, one of the queen mothers in New York has also um, a dance that's called the hetero healing dance. And many women, if they, you know, do this dance every day, it's, you know, working with their, the female organs and doing certain movements, a lot of them have um, killed certain female, um, you know, some had fibroids, some were trying to get pregnant, uh, just a lot of different array of different female problems, but doing the hetero healing dance has brought um, some wonderful <laughs> results for a lot of women. And she actually had a video where people were interviewed and kind of related um, what type of healing had taken place through doing that hetero healing dance. So hetero is, uh, in fact, today is her day. Her colors are yellow and green or pink and yellow if you're single and purple and green for healing. Her number's five. And uh, she loves all the sweetness. <laughs> she loves sweetness, the flowers, uh, lakes and rivers are her so her mode of water. Um, smile, smiling is one of her characteristics, you know, is just keep smiling and to generate that joy because enjoy and joy is key to healing and is very important not to get down, but to keep that constant joy in your life is such a powerful healing tool. So I wanted to give that part of Hedero. And in her, her picture, you see her smelling the rose, and so that rose is just, you know, taking time out in the day, you know, to smell the roses, to, you know, give thanks, to, um, you know, smile at people. It's just amazing sometimes you see people and just that one little smile will brighten their day and and it lifts their spirit. And that's, that's key for us, you know, because that's another way of just sharing with someone something so simple as a smile every day and, and, and share that joy that you have. And our people, we need this in our lives, and it's so key. And as mothers and sisters and all, you know, I just want to keep that joy flowing, keep it flowing, and um, show the love, (laughs) (laughs) that Oshun Hedaru love. Oh, cool. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Ambaina. And thank you so much, Sister Makula. And I want to thank Robert King and... um, and Miss Ethel Murray for um, hopefully our first annual shout out to mothers, the Black Mother in particular, on on the Mother's Day weekend, and and Happy Mother's Day to both of you too as well. Well, thank you. Happy Mother's Day to you. Thank you. Yes, happy, very happy Mother's Day to you. And <laughs> enjoy you your weekend. Much. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Are you okay. taking care? All Peace right, you too. Thank you. Peace and blessings. Peace and blessings. Uh, and here is my mother, <laughs> uh, Mrs. Helen LaSeer. Good morning, Mama. How are you doing? God bless you, darling. Peace and blessings. How are you doing? Oh. I'm fine. You're on the air. 
<laughs> and um yeah, so um so while you catch your breath, um and uh and think about grandmother Josephine Isaac, um, who I didn't get a chance to meet because she passed when you were twelve, uh, I wanna do a shout out to you, my my dear mother. Um, I wanna thank you so much for the life that you gave me, um gosh, almost fifty four years ago now. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite before, but almost. And uh, and all of the the great lessons you 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 taught me, which you know, hopefully that I've shared with my two daughters. Uh, one is you know your generosity. Um, I remember you always, you know, giving giving gifts. You know, preparing gifts for less fortunate people. Um, you know, I remember your, you know, making pralines on Sunday morning, early in the morning. The house would smell so yummy. And uh, and then um. You you know wrap them up the pralines the candy in uh in wax paper and we put it in a basket and we take it to church and uh, and I remember you um you know sort of always you know sort of collecting our you know clothing that we didn't need anymore out, out had outgrown and you know giving it donating it to um you know some charity and even now you know you you go out and visit the sick and the shut in and you know, always have a good word for others you know. I mean, always helping other people, um, which I think is really wonderful. And and I uh, really admire the way that uh, even though, you know, my, my father and you, you know, uh, your ex-husband, um, weren't able to uh, to live together, you know, as his husband and wife, you know, you still um, sort of lent a hand to him and tried to help him, you know, in his final days, you know, as he was battling um, renal failure and and dialysis and glaucoma and all those things. You know, when you come to town to visit us, you visit him and, you know, give him a good word. And I think that's really, really, uh, really kind and forgiving of you, um, you know, considering, you know, some of the history that you all had that, you know, you could have been bitter, you could have been angry, you could have, you know, um, held a grudge, but you didn't. You sort of released all that, and I'm sure that helped him um, heal within himself you know, from the things that he did that he couldn't undo, you know, um, you know, to you personally and also within the relationship. And uh and and then I admire, you know, sort of, you know, how, you know, now, you know, you're raising a grandchild as your child which, you know, now you could be relaxing and kicking back and, you know, you're doing the parenting thing all over again. I mean, seriously, I mean you take Edwin to the library, you take him to his um Estrian classes, I mean, you take him camping, I mean, you know, you're just like right there, and, and he's not an old child, he's got, you got like a lot more years to go before he's grown, like for real, <laughs> and and yet, you know, you're, you know, you're right there, you know, with, with uh, Elder Lassier, your husband, you know, helping him raise, raise, you know, his grandchild, um, you know, biological grandchild, so anyway, yeah, so I can go on and on, but now that I've given you a breath, you can do a shout out to your mom. <laughs> and to and to oh, your big God. sister who who you know also was like your your guardian and he raised you when your mother passed. Oh. Well, I just give God the glory and the praise, and I thank you for my diamond, which is Wanda Bernice Oliver uh, Savia. She's my diamond, always has been. She was my doll, um, just a childhood mother. But I thank God for her and uh, for living to see this day where my children, my daughter, can honor me. And I'm 
so humbled by it because it's a mother's dream. And I thank you this morning. I thank her, thank God for her being a wonderful mother to her two children and um, and grandmother to Brianna. And uh, I'm thankful for her generosity because she has so much love and she always sparkles like the diamond she is. And I love you too, my darling, and I'm so happy to be your mother. Yeah, thanks, Mom. Mm-hmm. So tell me about grandmother. Oh, Lord have mercy, mess the store. Uh, uh, I didn't know too much about my mother. Um, she passed when I was uh, 13, and um, a lot of my memory of my mother has been blocked out in my memory of her. I can only remember a lot of things about her through my baby sister, Theo Gale, who tells me about her, and also my other sister, Henrietta, Minister Henrietta Green. But I remember your uh, father's grandmother, uh, Rosetta. Oh, yeah. I remember her, and uh, she was always such a sweet person, always had a beautiful smile like your daddy. Mm-hmm. She had a beautiful smile, and uh, she was the usher at, at the church, her church, and she always would greet you with a smile, and she taught me how to iron your, your daddy's pants and how to cook things because I didn't have my mother to to school me in those things and all my sisters, they were in different places. And so I remember uh, uh, I always taught, you know, Mama Rosetta, and I remember her life and, and being around her, and she was always such a sweet person, and I thank God that uh, our paths crossed. And um, you're very much like her. Very much like your uh, your grandmother Rosetta, very much so, and I'm um, thankful for the her place in my life, mm-hmm. and for all the other mothers. This morning in the grocery line, there was a mother that a uh, grandmother that couldn't pay her grocery bill this morning. She was counting a little penny, and her bill was only eighteen dollars. Mm-hmm. And I was bagging my groceries. I said, "Oh, let me take care of it." She said, oh, "You will." I said, "Of course." Of course, and so she put a little change back in her purse, and I paid the money for her because it was only $18. What is $18 to gladden the heart of a mother? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was just so blessed, so blessed to be able to bless someone else this morning because that's my daily prayer. How can I glorify you, O oh God, in my life by blessing someone else? That's what it's all about. Giving of yourself, loving each other. Don't wait for one day. Do it every day. You mm-hmm. give flowers every day. It doesn't have to be garden flowers, but words. My daughter is a great communicator. Uh, she's a, what an English professor. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord! So I'm always kind of watching my P's and Q's and dot my eyes because I feel. You know, uh, you know my educated daughter. You know she said, "Oh, mama," you know her grammar and this and that. But she's never corrected, never in her life corrected me. She's never said anything. When she gets angry with me, she said, "Mama, I gotta go." But she never dishonors me in no way. And I'm so thankful to have such a wonderful daughter. And I give God the praise. Now oh. finished. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Mama. Um, but thank you so much um, for joining us because you really didn't have any notice. I just called you on the phone and you were in the grocery store and you said, let me get to my car. 
San Francisco County. So hopefully her case will set a precedence for others that are um, up for review uh, coming out of California, coming out of uh, San Francisco County. So um, so anyway, uh, here is Hope, Sweet Honey in Iraq. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on, pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on, pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on, pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to pray on. If we want hope to survive in this world today, then every day we've got to work on.
was incarcerated for her political beliefs, and she works for the San Francisco uh, County Sheriff's Department, you know, works with the women there and uh, doing a lot of work um, with sort of helping children stay in contact with their their incarcerated parents uh, through um, Families with a Future, a nonprofit that she started before she was working for the Sheriff's Department with the women. And so anyway, um, uh, Piet uh, gave me this CD um, on Monday, and I'm like, oh, this is so good. And it's like, oh, it's got that song on it. Ooh, and it's got that other, this other song on it. It's like, oh, my goodness. So um, so anyway, we're hoping that Majida Rahman is going to call us shortly um, because I have another interview um, with a uh, director of this great film that I am just, just enjoying, that I enjoyed so much that you're going to really love. It's called Payback. And uh, it's opening in theaters here in Northern California, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, in San Francisco at Landmark's Lumiere Theater, and uh, in Berkeley at the uh, Shattuck Cinemas. Um, and it's based on uh, a book by best-selling uh, author Margaret Atwood, and so it's really great. It's called Payback, and it looks at debt, but doesn't look at debt just insofar as um, as money or wealth, but looking at, you know, sort of like the debt that we might have, you know, within our souls and how some debt you actually can't pay off. So you really should be careful of the things you do <laughs> and, and, the, and, the, and, and sort of the trades you make because sometimes, you know, some things are irreversible. You can You can ask for forgiveness, but you can't fix things. You know, we think about BP and the oil spill. You can't fix that, you know, all those 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 lives those lives that were lost, you know, the visible and the invisible, and the lives that are being lost, the visible and the invisible, as a result of that spill, that it's going to reverberate in that region of this planet um, for years and years and years, you know, decades, centuries, um, you know, ways that we can't even imagine. Um, so anyway, we're going to be talking to the director of that film, and I'm waiting for Majita to call, but she has not called in, and my mother seems to still be in the studio. <laughs> Let's see if Mama's still there. Are you still there, Mama? Yeah. Oh, you're listening. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm gonna play another. I want to play another song. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for waiting for Majita to call, but I don't think she's gonna make it. We got two minutes, so I'm gonna play part of a song while we wait for our next guest. So keep on listening, Mama. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you back in the uh, green room and play another song. <laughs> okay. 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 Alrighty, let's see. Um, let's see. That was Hope, and this other one is long. We're not going to be able to play all of it, but I think it's really cool. And it's um, it's uh, Forever Love, and uh, that's also Sweet Honey and the Rock. Maybe I should play Greed because <laughs> that goes right into um, sort of what we're going to be talking about with this next um, next next guest. Let's look at Greed. <laughs> I've been thinking about how to talk about. Virus seeking out a 
thinking about how to talk about three. I've been wondering if I could sing about three. Trying to find a way to talk about three. Not partial to gender or your sexual desire. All it wants is for you to want to own the possess and to buy. Nothing seems to stop it once it enters your soul. As you buying anything, sending out of control. It moves within the culture, touching us all. Jennifer? I think that's a good 
<laughs> I think that's a good connection too. <laughs> yeah, I just wow. I was telling our audience before you um, made it into the studio that your film Payback, you know, um, documentary on debt, uh, based on Margaret Atwood's best-selling book um, by the same title, um, uh, Payback Debt and the Shadow Shadow Side of Wealth, is just wow. It's simply fabulous. Um, it's just. I mean, it's so perfect, too, you know, that we be talking about this, you know, on Mother's Day weekend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and we can think about, you know, our, our, you know, mothers, the ones that gave us birth, and we can also think about our mother, the planet, right? Well, you know what's interesting is that at the beginning of the book, um, uh, she she quotes somebody whose father presents him with a bill when he's, you know, in, in his early 20s or something, and it's a bill for everything that he has cost his dad up to that point and it was kind of like well so here 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 here's the bill that this is what you owe me and um you know of course our mother the earth and our mothers i mean one of the the interesting things about the book which of course is echoed in the film is that debt is is not money you know debt debt is money is a symbol of exchange and we have many symbols of exchange in our culture and not just um in our species you know interhuman but with other species and uh, as well and the planet of course and uh, uh when you start sort of parsing that idea of what is indebtedness what is this relationship between the person who owes and the person who is owed it's fascinating because it's kind of an endless discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly is, and um, yeah, it it really is. And I and I and I love the way uh, you know in your film that you um, you know you you um, have these different you bring in these different characters you know into the discussion, and you go back and forth between you know Adwood giving um, a lecture, and uh, and I kept on wondering what you know those. Uh, you know the the porcelain, you know um, figurines and the coins, and it's like, oh, a pawn shop. That's brilliant. Oh yeah. Oh, that well, is so a, brilliant. And <laughs> you know what um, Atwood told me, which I thought was fascinating, is that the pawn shops existed before sort of pre-biblical times. So the idea of being redeemed, which is religious language, you know, redemption, and uh, came from pawn shops rather than the other way around, which I thought was just fascinating. I mean, the idea of you, you know, you you take something at the pawn shop and it's only redeemed when you are when you pay for it, when you pay back for it. And uh, I mean, the the stories in the film were I was really trying to find real embedded stories of people living with situations of debt that would open up the um, very rich but very abstract ideas in the book. So none of the stories in the film are actually in the book, per se. They're interpretations of different kind of debt. So there is, you know, the, the workers in the tomato fields and the coalition of Immokalee workers are... Um, the the brilliant uh, farmer I mean wor- farm worker led organization that represents them and I don't think many of us spend too much time thinking about where the tomato in our salad or the tomato on our hamburger comes from uh, but once you get a glimpse into that world you you can't you can't 
keep yourself from making that connection. You are connected to that person. And the fact that there were you know, real documented and prosecuted cases of slavery um, uh, in the United States in, in the past 10 years um, uh, with farm worker and migrant workers is shocking. But it, it, it also shows the debt that we owe um, to the people who, who, who make our food. Right, yeah, and then that hearing um, is that with Senator Ted Kennedy. Um, yeah, you know, where, and Eric Schlosser. Yeah, that's that's like wow, and that's this is 2008, you know. Um, yeah, and, uh, that, that, you know, it, it's extraordinary. I mean, we're talking about four years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, very recently, and so you know, um, uh, you know, just sort of the way you know where you know you 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 um, the film you know sort of opens with you know this this vista you know, of these mountains and then and then we get to this feud that's in Albania, uh in northern Albania <laughs> and then and then you and then, so you tell this story, you know, of that family and what happened so that this family, the one there's like a feud and one family cannot go out of their house because if they do they will get shot by the other family. Um and and then the different different views of that reality, like the interpretation of what really happened, you know, that made this feud happen, and and they have such differing recollections of this. Well, issue. that that was quite <laughs> frankly part of the I mean part of the reason that we wanted to tell the story of these uh-huh. two families. I mean, when I said that there are different stories, the the the. <laughs> Coalition of Immokalee story is very much about, you know, financial debt. We 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 live in a system that is a, you know, um, a uh, for better for worse a capitalist economic system, and there's always somebody at the bottom of that system. What does it look like? Well, this is what it looks like. Um, those people are at the bottom of this system, and we all assent to it because we all live in it. So this is what the bottom that we 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 are um, responsible for. In the case of Albania, we're talking about moral debt, where this this concept of vengeance, uh, revenge, where you you the debt will not be paid unless blood is spilled. Um, of course, is something that we you know maybe don't don't uh, we're not too familiar with here. Um, and certainly in the cities of the south, in Albania, Tirana, for example, it's it's as you know sophisticated, just like any other European city. But when you go into the mountains of the north, the geographic isolation creates these um, systems where people take justice into their own hands. And these two families had a dispute about land. Um, one of them said one thing, one said the other, and they ended up in this locked in this feud that has now been going on for you know, uh, over 10 years with one family being trapped inside their house. And I was kind of, I mean, it's a tragic story, mostly for the children who are in the family that is trapped. They're desperately poor. Um, But also because I still don't know who's telling the truth in that story. And you can see how a, a situation like that would become intractable very quickly um, where you know it, this he said she I said you said I said kind of situation and how people get locked into these positions that they can't move from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's because of honor and shame. Because yeah. if you know the farmer whose um, land this this uh, neighbor was um, imp- and, um, you know sort of coming onto you know like with his fence you know if he assaulted 
the the woman, you know, who was out, you know, tending the crops, then he would be ridiculed by society because he said that in, in their community, men do not assault women. Oh, yeah, and, it would be a terrible shame um, right. for him. Yeah, Yeah. Um, so he he could never admit to that, that, he, that he pushed her and that she had to go to the hospital and have emergency surgery to stop the bleeding. So it's like, hmm, okay, so something happened <laughs> at the hospital. There's records. So, but well, we I know, know, but then you it. ask the question of even if, but then you ask the question of if you're having a fight with somebody, you know, about land, is it fair to take out a, a gun and shoot them? You know, and yeah, and that's it. Yeah. That, so then it kind of gives you the other side, and I think you know, I don't, I, I think we all have this capacity inside us, <laughs> the capacity for, for um, you know, revenge. Yeah, but then when he when when he says that he brought out an automatic rifle, and I'm like, oh, that's so overkill. Yeah, automatic well, exactly. rifle. What's he doing with an automatic rifle? <laughs> I know. I mean, there there may have been another way of settling the dispute, but that, of course, I mean, it, when we when we think about these, I think we all get into kind of feuds like this, where oh, I'm not talking to that person anymore, and this is just kind of perhaps a an extension of what happens when that's taken to an extreme, and that's the extreme. There's oh, also yeah. a story in the in the film about uh, a, a prisoner, Paul yeah, Mohammed. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Oh my god. Oh, he's such a. I mean, Paul is is uh, uh, will be released from jail soon, and I've oh, actually just. Oh, he went just, back. He went back. Oh my goodness! I, thought, I didn't know because I know he he would talk about how you know one day one time he was out he went back the same day but I thought he was not I thought he had come to some terms around this no no way. he was uh, he was in um, he was in jail when we interviewed him oh wow so that that yeah, weight room was a pr- in prison yeah oh so he he was in jail but he's uh-huh. getting his grade twelve uh, diploma and he's um, uh, he's coming out soon with high hopes, and we have high hopes from as well. But his story is is obviously also fascinating because it raises the question of there's all this talk, and particularly in our country in Canada, where there's been a lot of quite heavy-handed um, prison reform uh, by our our conservative federal government. And the question is, you know, what what are you doing in jail? Are you punishing somebody, or are you rehabilitating them? And if you're punishing them and they're paying their debt to society, um, as every you know everybody says that you're paying your debt to society by being in jail. Well, what does that really mean for someone like Paul Muhammad? You know, he had a terrible life yeah. growing up, and you think, well, maybe society owes Paul Muhammad a debt too, which is not to excuse his behavior, but to say that that um, it's it's complex. And if you are paying a debt to society by being in jail. Then, when you leave jail, um, it, it should be over. You know, you should be able to get out of jail and reintegrate. And of course, we know that that doesn't happen at all. As Conrad Black, our other um, uh, person who is is meditating on on uh, the justice system because he was also in jail, he says you're you're permanently stigmatized afterwards. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have a chance of reintegrating, how, how are you going to manage? You're going to go back uh, to 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 the life that that put you in jail in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then what's really great about having, um, you know, Paul Muhammad juxtaposed with Conrad Black is that their experiences in prison were so different. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Um, I don't know what kind of, where he was in prison, Conrad 
Black. But it sounds like a pretty cool place. I mean, he was talking about how he had TV, access to the Internet, as many books as he wanted to read. Um, yeah. It just sounded like, you know, it's like, where is this prison and what what was his crime? And, wow. Well, I mean, white-collar crime often results in, um, you know, it's a, it's a you're in a minimum security prison, which is, is is you know you have a lot of freedom there of course I mean you don't you don't have ultimate freedom but you you do have a lot of freedom and as he quite rightly points out you know there are a lot of people for whom the structure of that is is much more is much preferable to anything that they would be living with if they were outside and it it it's a very complicated question the justice question because obviously um, if we are just talking about punishment, then we're going to just keep getting people coming back into the system. If we start talking about education and rehabilitation, real rehabilitation, mm-hmm. um, I would say that that is what leads to you know, remorse and redemption on one level or another and to change. And, and, and that kind of rehabilitation requires you know, uh, a different kind of attention than the attention of punishment. Yeah, and then and then um, you you know sort of continuing in that this whole debt to society, um, you know, which is why people are supposedly um, incarcerated so they could pay their debt to a, to society. However, um, you know that debt doesn't seem to ever be paid or never enough. And and you visit the East Side Penitentiary, which is now I guess a museum, and and yeah. and, and the, uh, the I guess the curator. Um, talks about how initially penitence is where penitentiary comes from and people, you know, having the opportunity to reflect on what they did to get them there. Yeah, so basically they, so, repent. It's a penitentiary yeah. because you're meant to be <laughs> penitent in it. But the yeah. Eastern State Penitentiary, is a, it is a museum now and it's a fascinating place because it's this crumbling um, you know, Gothic uh, uh, structure. However, um, as the first modern penitentiary um, when it was built, um, it, it, it as as our curator says, it kind of collapsed under its own weight for two reasons. It became far too expensive to run because all of the people who were in there were in complete isolation. Uh, they were never meant to ever see any other person, so they had their own cell. They had little gardens attached to their cell so they could go outside. And their meals were put in under under the door. They even if if they worked, they only worked inside their cell. There were never any communal moments, and people went crazy from the isolation. The isolation was meant to be to allow them to reflect and repent. And the other thing about that is it became incredibly expensive to run because if you're dealing with that many different people uh, on that level, you know, individual meals, not being able to, you know, have two or three people in a room, it, it costs too much, and 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 that's one of the reasons that it failed. Hmm. Yeah, you know, you know, California has been looking, um, you know, recently at solitary confinement with the hunger strike that was um, was uh, uh, instituted um, or that happened at Pelican Bay um, because yeah. of the secured housing units. And um, and there was um, there been a lot. There was a public hearing, a large public hearing last year um, at the California State Assembly, um, uh, hosted by the uh, chair of the public, I think public safety welfare um, uh, committee, um, uh, Senator um, Assembly Speaker um, Assemblyman 
uh, Mark Leno out of San Francisco, and um, because it's it's in and one of the experts um, speaking um, for the inhabitants of the the secured housing units, he talked about the whole idea of penitentiary and uh, penitence and and how you know over time you know it was seen that this doesn't work you know taking people away from other human beings and isolating them was not something that made them rehabilitated them. Actually, it drove them crazy, uh, and it was inhumane uh, treatment. So to see this, this uh, cause I, but I never, you know, heard of Eastern State. Well, you don't really think about it, but it's interesting because people always talk about how you you work things out um, in relation with others. That's how you, you know, if you have to live with others in the world, then it makes sense that you would try to work things out or rehabilitate with others instead of in isolation. And you can't live in the world all alone, completely isolated. So is it not better to to try, you know, uh, rehabilitation uh, with in community? I guess is the is, so. It's an interesting question. But then you have the question. Um, you know, in the film also about uh, environmental debt and when some debt yes. mm-hmm. cannot be paid with money. And, you know, one of the reasons that we chose to film the Gulf oil spill mm-hmm. and to tell that story, both right when it happened and then a year afterwards to go back down and and ask people, you know, how's it going? Uh, how is it a year after when people have mostly forgotten about it um, internationally around the world, where, whereas the effects are still, you know, um, pervasive. Uh, and the, the question there was, how can you even put a monetary figure on this debt? And the, the attempts of BP to come up with a figure, you know, $20 billion as the, the figure of reparation um, it just seemed absolutely absurd <laughs> that you could even try to, you know, talk about it in terms of money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that um, that's a question that how, how do you measure that debt? How do you measure the debt to the the species in the ocean, and how do you measure that debt to the you know um, the 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 birds and the plants and and the people who 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 live there. I don't know. And I don't think you can do it with money. Yeah, and and it was just, you know, just, yeah, um, you know, the footage of of the golf and and those poor birds covered in oil and the the babies covered in oil and, oh, man, and and just, you know, sort of the aerial shots of, I guess, archival footage of you know, the early fires and then the dusting or the, what, what was that when they sprayed that stuff to make it all yeah disbursement yeah and then making everything and then right before it happens you know your um your expert um uh is her name cassie cassie is she the person cassie mobile Calloway. Bay, yeah cassie yeah, Carroll, she's yeah the, the mobile baykeeper. mobile baykeeper yeah right yeah and she said you know she was like talking to her person her expert and says but whatever you know at all costs don't let them do the dusting i mean you know the disbursement and then the next frame they're doing the disbursement, like, oh no, they're doing it. I mean, we, we know the story, of course, but uh, we're like, it, and then it's really interesting. I'm sort of jumping around. I mean, they do the disbursement, and then, you know, the um, it wasn't the case settled this year. Yeah, I mean, the 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 the, the, 
the 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 case was more or less. I mean, it it has been um, settled, or the figure has been determined, et cetera, et cetera. But there have also been, you know, criminal cases brought, uh, starting to be brought against. Um, uh, so people are trying to figure out what what actually happened, whether things were covered up, et cetera, et cetera. And it is one of those situations where you're now seeing, certainly in terms of the um, uh, you know the shrimp fishery, uh, et cetera. The what the longer term repercussions will be, but you know the longer term repercussions we really won't know for you know ten, twenty years. So uh, the, the, there are some people who believe that all of that oil is just sitting at the bottom of the ocean um, because it was dropped down to the bottom by the dispersant rather than you know. Uh, skinned and boomed and and picked up from the top, and whether that was a, you know, a, a a PR move, as Casey says, a way to sort of keep it out of sight, out of mind, um, you know, that's open to debate, I guess. But it, if if that oil is still on the bottom, um, it, it's it's not gone. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's still there. Yeah. So, so tell our audience. Um, you know, you've got other films under your belt, and and your partner is a is a is a is he a filmmaker um, as well? He is. I have been working with um, <laughs> my husband <laughs> um, for twenty years now, and we've made uh, all of our films together. He's okay. he's a producer, and he's the cinematographer. So oh. everything that you see in the film. Uh, oh, he did he, it. He shot it. <laughs> And it's oh, a what it's a wonderful a great, team. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, as we say often, we we spend way too much time together because we also have <laughs> children, and you know, we it's this life work balance constantly. But um, most people, when they go to work, at least they go into a different world than the world of their spouse. But for us, we're we're together all the time. In fact, I'm sitting across from him at a partner's desk right now in our office. <laughs> so. Um, but uh, we—it's uh, a very—it's a productive relationship because one of the things I realize, and I've noticed this when I work with other people, and he works with other people too. Sometimes we're not always glued to each other, but uh, <laughs> um, you do have to schedule time to talk about things. And when you're working with, when I'm working with another cinematographer, or I'm. I'm I'm working with other people. You have to sort of sit down and say, okay, let's talk about these issues that we have to deal with in this film. Whereas with my husband Nick, Nick Pontier, we have we can talk about it at any time. So we're you know in the car on a long drive, and our kids are asleep in the back, and we have a couple of hours to talk. And I think that that ongoing communication about our work is really helpful in the stuff that we do together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you pronounce your last name? Bichwal. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was reading, and I don't know if I'm certain where that is in in the um, uh, the notes um, of how someone gave you the book, <laughs> gave you this idea, and you spent a lot of time trying to figure out after you you read the book like over a year, and then you were doing a little research into sort of the the language of 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 debt via, you know, the economics of it um, before you decided not to, well, I mean, you know, decided sort of the angle you were going to take on the story. But I wonder if you could um, talk about, you know, these, um, you know, your process because as you say in, you know, in the notes that, you know, you read and wrote for a year, you shot for a year and edited for a year, um, you said, I wish I could be more efficient, but I guess I haven't 
figured out how to do that yet. I probably won't. <laughs> and then you show the film to, you know, Margaret Atwood, and I'm like, I just love her work. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, The Handmaid's Tale, she could have stopped there. But she oh, didn't. I know. And I her know. poetry is so phenomenal. I mean, like, she's oh, just she, like, oh, she, my God. She's extraordinary. I mean, you can imagine how intimidated I was um, adapting a book <laughs> of hers. Could, like that, yeah. that in itself was, was quite terrifying. But... I think I realized uh, the book came from the National Film Board in Canada, which is a wonderful institution in our country that supports documentary um, and and Canadian film animation documentary. But they've really been the voice of documentary um, uh, or or strong supporter of documentary here over the years. And they got the rights to her book. And this wonderful producer there, Ravita Din, uh, called me and said, would you be interested in this? And of course, my first response was no, for two reasons. I, why would I um, set myself up for the agony of trying to adapt a Margaret Atwood book, one? And two, if it's about money, I'm not the right person to do it. And when I read it and found out that it was about guilt and sin and revenge and forgiveness and and, and environmental catastrophe and all of these things that we live with every day in our relationships you know that just little things like you open a door for someone and if they don't say thank you you're you're kind of missed you know because they owe you that we we, we're governed by these 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 um patterns of exchange that i think are, are are what what make us a social and cooperative um species as humans and I think that we are more cooperative than competitive for the most part but when I read it and I so then I was hooked but then it became this question of well how do I you know make this intelligent into a film if it's it, it may not be able to be done and that's why it took so long and I think that my um, my process is a bit of a laborious one because I really um, feel like I have to know everything or kind of get a uh, get a handle on everything before I start. So I do a lot of research. And then we often go back to places three, four, five times. So we were in Florida um, four or five times, and we didn't even know that the CIW was going to make an agreement with Pacific Tomato Growers when we started filming there. That happened during the course of that year and was a wonderful uh, example of paying back um, but it happened just because we were filming and we took a long time. And I, I don't think you can really, um, I don't think you can tell significant stories when you don't build up significant relationships. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's sort of crucial, especially to the kind of documentary work that we do. Yeah, and, and speaking of relationships, I mean, you had like a star-studded cast of experts. Oh, my goodness. So how did you get, you know, Karen Armstrong and... Um, Patel and yeah, talk about your experts and it's just just really cool the way you sort of wove that into the story um, and I and I just love you know again um, um, you see you, you mentioned his name was Paul Paul Muhammad uh, yeah. you know you're you're um, you know one of the subjects and in the story of of his you know addiction and and what that led him to do you know like robbing this woman who um was uh, a survivor of the holocaust and yeah. and his like talking about how fast he turned around you know what he uh sort of took from her house 
um, you know, he's, I think he smoked it up or shot it up or whatever. Um, I don't know which direction it went in, but, uh, you know, when he bought drugs and used them, it was so fast. But sort of the the resulting um, pain, you know, it, it's it's still with that woman. You know, she doesn't feel safe in her house, but she doesn't want to yeah. leave her house because it's her community. And just that whole, you know, victim, um, uh, perpetrator uh, sort of facing each other like that in your film is just really remarkable, as well as, you know, the farm worker and uh and the and the um um I guess the 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 person who owns the farm, you know, them facing each other in your film was really great. And then even, you know, the two sides of the feud facing each other with this arbitrator in the middle who's with the world court. Um yeah, uh why don't you talk about all these experts and, and then the ending is so fabulous. I just love that. Oh, thank you. And, and, oh, and then Ebenezer Scrooge. We love that story. Well, her her idea of Scrooge (laughs) is this, you know, this character who who is is greedy, let's Mm -hmm. say, and kind of has has an epiphany. But the experts in the film, I mean, I I read all of these people and follow them. Raj Patel is, I mean, he's such a wonderful person and so smart and so acute in his observations um that I, I he's an extraordinary writer talker thinker and um you know he was the right person obviously to to talk about uh issues around well everything but particularly um farm worker justice and karen armstrong of course you know one of the premier um i would say probably the best known uh uh commentator and uh, analyst of of religious life uh, contemporary religious life uh, is is she's extraordinary, and I wanted these views, these people's views, to not be like they were experts pronouncing on the stories and saying, "Oh, this is what you should think of this." And I know people have had we've had reactions to some of our films. Um, our, our films are they're elliptical, not linear. They don't advance a particular argument. That you know, you start at the beginning, and the whole film is about you know shoring up that argument they're trying to create a space for you to think about something in a different way so when you have you know um uh one of these thinkers william reese for example who is the the person who first coined the term ecological footprint and he was the he was he developed ecological footprint analysis he's a brilliant thinker but when he just talks about, you know, maybe capitalism has run its course, it's defunct because it, it's based on a notion of unlimited resources, that opens up an idea a bit. And I wanted the commentators and the, the thinkers in the film to do that so that we could get deeper into, um, you know, a, a an exploration of what debt really is. So I really tried to have um, <clears throat> these... Uh, these great um, provocative and yeah thought thought provoking um, statements interwoven with the stories and with with Margaret Atwood's um, uh, lecture because these this, this book was originally a lecture as a way of of circling around this issue and and opening it up uh, to so we could think about it more that was the idea. Uh, well, it's brilliant and. Um Yes, <laughs> it is just fantastic, and wow, I'm sure Margaret Atwood loved it. 
she? Well, that was, uh, you can imagine how terrified I was when we showed it to her because she really didn't see it at all. And it wasn't part of the editing process, really. And um, I, I, we, we screened it for her, and I was so relieved that she liked it. And she has been so supportive in terms of, um, you know, talking uh, talking about it, coming with us to the Sundance Film Festival when it opened, coming with us to New York when it opened, and really being a champion of it. But I also knew that one of the advantages of taking so long to make films is that you 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 generally have thought about every possibility. So if she had, you know, said that there was something she didn't like, I have probably already thought about that in my own head and come up with some kind of a response to it. So I knew I could justify it, um, justify the choices that, that we made, but I'm very glad and, and relieved uh, that she also liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, we think about the uh, the uh, aphorism, um, pay it forward. And, yes. and And so, you know, you think about that in light of payback, you know, paying it forward, because that's definitely sort of, uh, you know, in, it's included, even if unspoken, in the payback because, you know, it, it goes both ways, <laughs> you yes. know, the debt goes well, in both directions. You know what's directions. interesting? Margaret talked about that. Atwood talked about that in the, um, we did a Q&A at Film Forum in New York, and she said, uh, you know, I can't pay back Shakespeare because he's not alive anymore. Um uh, but I owe a great debt to Shakespeare as a writer, and what I can do is is pay it forward with by helping other writers, by being a mentor for other writers, by letting, uh, by hoping that other writers are inspired by my work. And I just thought that was such a beautiful sentiment because that's exactly right. We all have people who have, uh, and not just you know people and situations and environments and ecosystems that have helped us and and have um inspired us and encouraged us and i think that we by by trying to paying it forward is is trying to do things that um maybe that the people who helped you will will not reap the benefit but others will mm-hmm. that that would be wonderful <laughs> as a model Certainly, certainly. I want to let our other guests, uh, Eleanor Jacobs, know that I have not forgotten you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I just want to thank you so much um, for for this wonderful film and uh, payback, and let our audience know again that it's opening uh, May 18th in San Francisco and simultaneously in Berkeley at That's the Pierre Theater at Cinemas. Yes, next Friday, the day before, like on. Malcolm X birthday eve, uh Lorraine Hansberry birthday eve, um Ho Chi Minh birthday eve. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Well, and I I think I'm doing a couple of Skype Q&As so um, oh, super. at the uh, at the theater. So I anyway, I hope uh, people oh, get out to see it. Oh, Oh, that's great. Oh, that would be so cool. Yeah, that would be, um, be great. Because uh, I was going to ask you, you where you're going to be be visiting us, but this is just just really a uh, remarkable um Remarkable document, and and I want to thank you so much because my my family's in the Gulf, I'm from New Orleans, and and so you know as many ways that we can keep this story in in the public eye, and keep you know the energy you know the positive energy going toward that region, and as many people that can go and help with the cleanup, and you know press our our legislators to not let this company get away with this 
um, yeah. you know, the better. And, and tougher, tougher regulations for oh, offshore drilling, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, go to mobilebaykeeper.com if you're interested in finding out more about what Casey and her group do mm-hmm. of water keepers. They're extraordinary, and uh, they're fighting for that uh, uh, that area. But you're right. We have to keep we have to keep on about it. We can't forget. Right. Yeah. And as I mentioned, you know, before you came on the air, you know, we just have to be careful. Um, and we need to we need to sort of monitor our responses to things. You know, we need to be more proactive as opposed to reactive because, you know, you can mess up and not be able to mend it. I mean, this guy, you know, in northern Albania is singing about, um, you know, uh, what is it, reconciliation. But the guy in the bar who shows us all the places where the bullet went, he's not yeah. feeling that. He's like, no, nah, man, no, we're not going to the law. We're going we're gonna to shoot your butt if you show up. So, no, uh-uh, forever and ever. You're not ever going back to your farm, no matter how lovely that was. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. No, it's, a, it's a terrible situation. Yeah, anyway. it is. Yeah. Well, well, thank you again. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Sure, and happy Mother's Day. <laughs> oh, yes. Happy Mother's Day to you. All right, peace and blessings. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Hi, Eleanor, how are uh, you? Fine, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for hanging in there. Eleanor Jacobs is going to be portraying Lena Younger um, in the African-American Shakespeare Company's production of Raisin in the Sun, Lorraine Hansberry's. Uh, I don't know. It might not be the most well-known, but I think it could be. I'm not, I don't have any statistics on that, but <laughs> people think Lorraine Hansberry, think, you know, raising in the raisin sun. Raising in the sun, for sure. For <laughs> yeah, and sure. you are playing the mama. You're playing yes. the big mama. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be doing so. Just so grateful to be doing so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why don't you um, tell our audience about, about Lena Younger and this family that's in Chicago and trying to um, make do when, you know, the the – you know, the the head of the household, the father, he, right. he, he passes away. And I think sounds like the man worked himself to death. He did. He did. They were poor and black and in Chicago and struggling. This was in the early 50s, and they were struggling mm-hmm. to just make it day to day. But they had a wonderful sense of family between Lena and her husband, and they passed this on to the children. And that, I think, is the strength of it. There was just an innate understanding of the importance of family and staying together. And at the same time, and I think this is is just my opinion, one of the reasons the play is so well-known and beloved is because there is this theme of even though you love each other and you're committed to each other, there is lack of understanding that causes friction and tension and and uh, negativity among you, at, even as a family. Even as strong as your love is, there is still the, the growing and the learning and the pain of living together and trying to understand each other. And I just think that that's – a lot of people can relate to that <laughs> And that is, in my opinion, one of the reasons why the play is still alive and still beloved today. Right. Lena is a single mom. Yeah. She, she had is. a strong husband, and and he worked and worked and worked himself to death, as she says in the play. And now it's on her. She has it all on her shoulders to keep it together, to keep her children moving forward 
in a positive way. And it it it's a lot. It's really a lot on her shoulders. And so she is constantly aware of her need to be strong for her family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the family, um, you know, they're all they're all staying in this apartment. Um um you don't you don't see many black families like that any longer. Um people are more spread out, but in this right. particular family the grandmother's the you know, Lena Younger, right, he's there and, and her son, you know, Walter Lee Younger, he's in that house with his with his wife, wife and, and child and son. So they've right. got like three you know, what three generations, <laughs> three generations. and his sister. His kid right. sister is there, um uh Ruth. No, no, Ruth is his sister. The, the Ruth daughter is his law. wife, right? His Benita wife. is his yeah, Benita. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, Benita. She's she's a real, you know, she's this a trip. thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's in college <laughs> and learned about her African heritage. <laughs> and she is so different. Uh, you know, the way she sees the world is so different <laughs> from the way her mother saw the world and, and, and grew up looking at the world. So there is the pain of, the mother trying to understand how her daughter sees the world. And and it's very painful for her because she would like for her daughter to be her little baby, you know, and just be nice and be kind. And Benita has her own mind, and she has expanded her view by going to school and interacting, and she is very strong-willed. I think she is as strong-willed as her mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think if anyone is is you know sort of like the arbitrator or trying to like keep the peace, it must be Ruth. Right. And Ruth. <laughs> yeah, Ruth. Ruth uh, yeah. is so <laughs> strong and so quietly. Her strength is just always flowing, always flowing, and she really has an understanding. I think in some ways, of where they are, where Walter Lee is and where Benita is, that is is greater than uh, Lena's understanding. I think she is trying to help Lena. She's trying to keep the peace, and she's trying to help Lena grow and understand as well. And it's hard. It's hard. And she's even keeled and strong and and caring, you know, her whole presence is caring and nurturing. And yeah. she she really wants everybody to be nice and to get along. And <laughs> <laughs> she does. She really does. Yeah, and she puts up with a lot. Um, you know, she keeps a lot in to, to sort of be the arbiter, try to keep peace in the house because it's too tiny. The space oh, yeah. is too small for there not to be kindness and love between the various members of the right. family because there's nowhere to go to get away. Right, there like, isn't. And so that, causes an extra, <laughs> that, that causes even more need mm-hmm. for the peace that she tries to bring. And and they're volatile. I mean, Mama, Mama she will go so far, and then she's just going to not take it anymore, you mm-hmm. see. And there's a scene where she expresses that to Benita. And uh, it's, you know, these days we look back, you know, and say, wow. Yeah. And, uh, but but Ruth, she just stays, stays, stays even-keeled and strong, even though she's hurting inside mm-hmm. at times. 
And I think she is the balance in the household. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of themes um, come up in this play. When when was it written? In the early, well, it was written in the early 50s. Okay. If I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and it was produced in the early 50s. Yeah, okay. And it was a phenomena, as I understand it, at the time it was produced, because to have this young black woman playwright mm-hmm. produce such a play was really a phenomena in the theater world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did she, um, is this the one she got, like, did she get, like, did Lorraine Hansberry get um, get one of the first awards? Um, I for think writing? she did. I'm not certain of exactly what the award was, but I know the critical praise was just inordinate. She, this play just riveted the theater world and some of the, the the uh, best known and and respected critics were just uh, boiled over and just had nothing but praise for her. They were just amazed that when they uh, realized that this young woman could produce such a play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I was reading, uh, just looked it up, and it says uh, it premiered on Broadway on March 11, 1959. Uh-huh. And um, it says, Waiting for the Curtain to Rise on Opening Night, Hansberry and producer Philip Rose did not expect the play to be a success, but already received mixed reviews from a preview audience the night before. And though it received popular and critical acclaim, reviewers argued about whether the play was universal or particular to the African-American experience. Uh, the New York Drama Critics Circle named it the best play of 1959, and uh-huh. it ran for nearly two years and was produced on tour. Uh-huh. And it was the first play written by a black woman to be produced on Broadway, as well as the first play with a black director, Lloyd Richards, on Broadway. Uh-huh. Yeah, and and it's like, wow, um, Sidney Poitier was in the play, Claudia <laughs> McNeil was in uh-huh. the play. They both got Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Director was Lloyd Richards. Um, it's like, wow, that's pretty So it was cool. a smash. It was a total a smash. smash. And then they made the film, you know, just two yeah. years later. Right, right. <laughs> And that was well-received as well. It sure was. And then it's so well-received, um, you know, they did it again with Felicia Rashad and and uh, Sean Combs, right? Right. Now, I haven't yeah. seen that, but I know it won high praise as well mm-hmm. in awards. Yeah, yeah. The revi- and it was a revival on Broadway in 2004 with Sean Combs and oh, Felicia yeah. Rashad, and, and that led to the movie in 2008, uh-huh. the TV film. Yeah. So talk about... Talk about um, you know, Lena, Mama, and, you know, her husband dies, and she's got, you know, these headstrong children, her son, right. uh, Walter and her Lee. her son has, he is ambitious, <laughs> and he describes himself as a volcano. He works as a chauffeur, mm-hmm. and he just, that just chafes him, you know. He doesn't like that. He wants to, he has big ideas. He's exposed to the business world through his job, the person he works for, and so he gets to see and be in the environment where business deals are being made and decisions are being made. And he sees this, and, of course, he's not able to participate. He's just observing. But within himself, he feels that he is just as qualified. And, you know, he should be able to be doing that instead of to be doing, you know, what he's doing. And so he's all wound up. And he describes himself as a volcano. He has all these dreams and these these ideas, and he wants them to go forward and flower, and he's just stymied. And then there is this insurance money that's coming, 
life insurance money that's coming. And he is seeing this as his opportunity to to do something, to break out of this, you know, prison that he sees himself in. And he has ideas about what he wants to do with this. And the Lena does not agree at all and does not understand, and in no way is she going to allow this money to be used in the way that Walter wants it to be used. So there is just tension, and Walter lashes out, and, and Lena stands her ground, and so you it's, you know, that kind of situation. It's mm-hmm. volatile. It's yeah, absolutely volatile. That's putting it putting it lightly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, when one thinks about, you know, Walter Lee, you know, talks about himself where he compares himself to a volcano, you think about the title, um, you know, Raising in the Sun, and that comes from Langston Hughes' poem. Um, right. Um, uh, what's what's the Langston Hughes' poem called? It's about the Dream Deferred. Yeah, Dream Deferred, oh. right. And then, and in the end, you know, it's like, um, do you know that poem? Could you, could you I don't it? know it verbatim, but I've certainly read it and enjoyed it over the years. And I know that the play, the title of the play, and the the inspiration comes from that poem. Yeah, because what happens is if you have a dream deferred, um, right. it, it explodes. Um, right. Yeah, and that's the line. Um, let me uh, let me find it and oh, wonderful. It. Yeah. So, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? or fester like a sore, and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? Uh-huh. Yeah, and then and then you have, you know, volcanoes, mountains. Right. What do they do? <laughs> they explode. <laughs> they explode. <laughs> yeah, and everything, everyone who's nearby feels... You know what happens after that? Right. Like the rocks hit you in the head. Right. The Nobody lava burns untouched. on you under the feet. Nobody is untouched. Nobody so, is untouched. Yeah. So we don't want Walter Younger to explode. No. <laughs> <laughs> and Lena is using her strength. Mm-hmm. She stands toe to toe with him, mm-hmm. and she she uh, stands on her right to see her vision of the world and her right to make the decisions about what she thinks is best for the family. And she knows that he doesn't agree, and it's totally opposed to what he's thinking. But she is not going to buckle. She is not going to buckle. She has in her mind what she thinks is best for the family, and she's moving forward that way. And it saddens her. It makes her sad, for sure. It hurts her inside that he doesn't agree, but she is determined. And she feels she has to be because her husband is not there, and she knows and feels what he would think and do about the situation. Right, yeah, because she, you know, she loves, she loves oh. uh, you know, Walter Lee, and yet and she loves Benita, and she loves her, her, you know, loves her grandson as right. well as his mother, Ruth, and she wants to try to do what's best for all of them with this little bit of money, right. which is not, which is not, you know, you know, the father, it's, right. you know, he worked himself to death, so it's like blood money. Right. It's like, it's like blood it's, money. Yeah. Right, yeah. and she... And and I my sense of it is that she and Walter Lee were really really close and really loved each other, mm-hmm. and she misses that on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and and yet she has to put that aside and just be strong, be strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what is it with this this black woman strength thing? 
<laughs> well, it's, yeah, you know, yeah, it's this funny character. That because I was thinking about that, and, uh, uh-huh. you know, I'm a woman of a certain age, and I've, you know, heard a lot of debate back and forth, and but I my grandmother was one of those strong matriarchs and so forth, and so I think we just, we wanted to keep our families, the black women, uh, keep them alive, number one was just a basic thing, particularly with the history of slavery and and the segregation and all that the black people have gone through in this country. Sometimes it was the mother and that woman who was a strong woman that actually kept people alive, kept the children alive, kept the family alive because the threats were real. I mean, life and death threats were real. And in the, the era that Lena came from, she remembers lynching and those things that happened to black people. So I think the women, the strong, the strength came about of necessity in many situations to just keep your children alive, keep your family alive. And then as the years went by, it was to constantly be looking forward, constantly constantly be looking at what is more positive, what is more positive, where can we go, where can we grow, where can we, you know, begin to live life to the fullest. So, again, you know, it may not have been a matter of life and death as it had been in, in you know, in the past, but it was still a matter of life and death into ensuring that the the path is positive and we're moving forward 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 yeah well you can think about it i mean it was it is was a matter of life and death because um with lorraine hansberry you know the uh lorraine vivian hansberry um uh the third uh mm-hmm. she was born may 19 1930 and she departed um from this this life um on this planet in in the form that we we know you know right. much, uh january 12 1965 right. um you know her father he was um uh he was a real estate developer and broker and and the family moved around chicago integrating the various neighborhoods uh-huh. and you, you remember the story where someone um uh planted a bomb in their house and and or no threw a bomb through her window their window or threw a, threw a bottle through the window and she had just been sitting there and she would have still been sitting in that window because they didn't right. want her living in that neighborhood they would burn crosses on their their lawns and things, she would have been hit by that bottle if, right. if she would have been right. sitting there. So, so she, um, she was very aware. Mm-hmm. And to be yeah. able to put it into this story, mm-hmm. you're, I'm constantly in awe, you know, as you yeah. read it, working in the play, and there's just nothing but awe that this young woman, because that's young, she was only 35 when she passed, that is young to be able to put all of those experiences together and weave the tapestry of this right. story. Yeah, well, let me let the audience know that um, the African-American Shakespeare Company is actually, um, you know, this play it closes their, their wonderful season. And uh, this particular play directed by artistic director um, L. Peter Callender, it opens on the 12th, uh, which is Saturday the 12th, and it continues through the 27th of May at the African American Art and Culture Complex in the Barrio Clay Theater. Um, I do not have the 
contact information right in front of me. Do you happen to have it in front of you? Hello? Well, I can give you <laughs> Erica's number, and she would have all of that. It would be oh, able to no, get it. Oh, no, we don't want please. to give Erica's number, so we, I'm, <laughs> looking, I'm looking for it. Oh, here it is. Uh, the Barry Clay Theater is located at 762 Fulton Street at Webster in San Francisco. Tickets are 10 to $35, and information is area code, well, one 800 838-3006, or you can visit African-AmericanShakes, S-H-A-K-E-S, dot O-R-G, for all the information uh, and for tickets. Again, um, that's the 12th, May 12th through the 27th, uh, Lorraine, uh, not Lorraine, excuse me, <laughs> at uh, African-American Shakespeare Company, which uh, has its um, theater in the Barrier Clay Theater at the African-American Art and Culture Complex, 762 Fulton Street at Webster. Okay, just wanted to make sure we did that before. Thank you, now, thank you. Thank the, uh, <laughs> so, um, tell us about about your background. How do you how did you come to this wonderful character? And tell us about the ensemble. I'm sure it's just really fabulous. I was looking at some of the names I recognize. I'm like, ooh, this is going to be so good. Right. Well, L. Peter Callender, number one, is amazing. He is amazing, and talk about volcano. You know, just any session with him to me is like a master class in acting. And he's a renowned director and an actor. Mm -hmm. So that to me, we are we have an enhanced opportunity here, and that's why I say I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And I'm I've been acting since grade school, and still, uh, and then I do other things to pay my bills. But this is where my heart has always been. And I had always acted in grade school and high school and community theater and then did not do anything for more than 25 years. Oh, wow. And I was raising my family and building a career and so forth and then went back about five years ago and started taking classes again and acting and and auditioning and started actually acting in uh, productions again in the African-American Shakespeare Company. I've been in three productions there. Okay. And so I was in Cinderella. I was Grandma on Cinderella. Okay. <laughs> you were great. Love and it. I did that twice. And then I was Cleante okay. in uh, Tartuffe, their production of Tartuffe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I was Dr. Pinch in Comedy of Errors. Okay. So I really just felt that it was, home, you know, and what a wonderful opportunity to be able to work in with this company that was founded by a young black woman, Sherry Young. Mm -hmm. And uh, so to be able to be in this production of Raisin in the Sun is like awesome to me. Mm -hmm. I'm just awed. (laughs) And the cast, Wanda, the cast, sometimes I'm sitting watching in rehearsal and my mouth is literally open. My mouth just falls open at the level of talent that is that that L. Peter has uh, arrayed here. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. It's like Lorraine herself could not have done any better with putting together this group of people to do this play that L. Peter has done, the way he's done this. And it's just, I just feel it's a wonderful opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. Well, let's mention some of the cast, um, just in case um, we have some listeners that might know their know them. Um, we've got uh, Kagan uh, Wethington. Uh, he plays George uh, Merkinson, and um, and then we've got I think George is George the uh, the representative for the the the, uh, 
the association that is trying That's to That's Mr. Keep Linder. Linder, Eric, okay. I think his name is Carl Linder. Carl Linder, okay. So uh-huh. is George one of, um, uh, one of uh, Walter's friends? George is Benita's boyfriend, one of the young men that she goes out with. Oh, okay, okay, all right. Yeah, and then the other one is um, uh, Joseph Asagai, right, played by Eric Banks. Right, right. <laughs> he is the young African man who is in love with Benita. Right, yeah. <laughs> and um and then we've got uh Ruth Younger is um played and by she, Leontine um Bele um Bung. Right. Yeah. And uh and then we've got uh Carl Linder who we mentioned, um he is the person um who's with the uh the tennis association. And um, that's Lance Huntley is Right, Lance yeah, and, and uh that's because uh, one of the things that um um, your character has a balance is, okay, we've got these dreams and we don't want anything to explode. So how do we balance this out? We only have a we have a finite, you know, amount of money and right. uh, and nothing this big of a sum is coming back coming. So we wanna like she wants to put a little bit, you know, aside for the grandchild's education. Right, for Benita. Yeah. Well for, for Benita his for daughter. the grandchild for sure, but for Benita's because Benita, who's played Benita's by Ciara Harris yeah. She wants to be a doctor. Right. So she really wants to push out. And then Walter, who's played by Todd Risby, mm-hmm. he has his own dream for this money. Mm-hmm. So right. that's where the clash the clash comes in. Yeah. And Lena does say she's very adamant that yes, there will be some part of this money put aside for beneath the schooling. Mm-hmm. So she is adamant about that. Right, right, yeah. And and then we have um we have some other we have a few two children that are playing the Travis younger character and we have uh Zion Richardson is one and right. Davion Green is the other so they're right. and all they're connect. they're just phenomenal they are fantastic actors mm-hmm. and it's a pleasure to work with them right an honor to work with them really to mm-hmm. see these young actors and they're nine I think their ages are eight and nine okay. Nice, nice, yeah. And then uh, another one of Walter's friends is played by um, the friend Bobo. Is played right. by B. Chico Perryman. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know his his work. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. so it's um, and I don't know. Did we mention uh, Sierra Harris who plays Bernita? Yeah, Sierra okay. Harris is yeah. Bernita. Right, and then and then you, the mother. You know the. Yeah, I just really really like how um, your character sort of um, tries to to find a. a um, a place um, that she can allow her son to be the man that he right. wants to be, and 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 you know, and sort of loosen whatever strings or right. whatever was right. holding him back. The apron that, strings, right? Yeah, exactly. So that uh-huh. he could come into the fullness of who he is, because maybe prior to that, this challenge, you know, or this legacy that his father left for him, you know, he wasn't really a, being a man. You know, maybe he was. You know, almost a man, but not quite there yet. Right. And so now here's and the opportunity for him to step very, into it. You know, she was one of those mothers with this is my cup, so I'm sure there were times mm-hmm. when she was could be stifling mm-hmm. to him, yeah. but always with the idea of keeping it positive. Mm-hmm. But, again, she doesn't really understand his view of the world. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yes. <laughs> he he has a lot. He has a lot on his shoulders. A yeah. strong mother, and yet these dreams that are totally opposite to the way she sees the world. 
And yeah. she controls this opportunity. She mm-hmm. is a decision maker mm-hmm. about this opportunity, this money, what will be done with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but she's... And that's kind of universal. The families, I think that's part of the appeal that a lot of people in families can relate to that. You know, whatever pathway they're on, they can relate to those family themes, the love, the closeness, and yet the the tension and the lack of understanding that can be there at the same time in a family. Mm-hmm. So it's very much a family story. Yeah, yeah. And um you know, and, and you know, and, and your character is looking looking at the future, you know, if the family has a house they don't have to worry about yes. they don't have to worry about a place to stay. That's important. Right. You know, having a house with a little garden, you know, right. she's got this flower that she's been you know, sort of nurturing. Right. She has this one and, plant mm-hmm. that she's been nurturing, and if they get this house, she can finally have a chance to have a little, because she calls it a little patch of dirt mm-hmm. where maybe I can grow me a few flowers. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're on the south side, and they're looking, you know, not that they don't want to live on the south side, but there's more, you know, they can't find what they want there. They want right. a better community, a better neighborhood, and so if that means they have to move across town, then so be it. And she right. found this nice house that they can afford. And then what happens with that? You know, it's like the neighborhood, you know, in the in the guise of their representative says, no, we don't want you to live here. Right. We'll pay you more money to not right. live here than right. you would have if you moved in. Right. And pay then that's them. another dilemma. <laughs> right. And, it, and it seems like they're paying them to say, they are paying them to say they're not worth living, right. as Lena says, not worth being on the earth. Right, right, And yeah. then she just cannot, she will not, you know. That's, it's just something that is impossible for her to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, she's got, she, you know, she can, you know, she's got that memory, you know, the Sankofa, you know, she doesn't have to turn her head back too far to be able right. to be enslavement. Oh, <laughs> and absolutely. And to see Jim Crow. Absolutely. And they're in, they're in, they're living in a time of, you know, segregation, even right. though, quote, you know, they're in the north, like not really the north south. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's your what is your what are some of your favorite scenes, um, yeah, in in the play? <laughs> well, certainly the scene where as she says, Walter comes into his manhood. And that scene is thrilling. It's thrilling. It mm. it gives me chills. Uh-huh. And the scene where he you know, his plan to Go along with this man who's offering the money. That is just chilling to see how he expresses what he intends to do. But it, but what it, what gets you about it? What's chilling is you get a chance to see his level of despair, the despair that he is feeling that would drive him to this decision to go along with that. And and Todd Risby, the actor, is just. Wonderful, and that scene just chills me. It just, you know, it just frightens me. But but there's that glorious scene where, uh, you know, he sees the world and sees it there and realizes in a moment when he sees his son, the next generation, that he cannot uh, do that. He just can't do that. And when he says that. And that is just, I think, you know, the cat. We there are moments where we're overcome as cast members, <laughs> and, 
And that's certainly one of them for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I was thinking, um, as you were saying that, the themes of, of you know, trust, 